Welcome back to another arousing edition of Beerfield. I am your host, Ad Hot BFF with two Ps. As always, joined by Dan Thurry, Thurry BFF, two S. Dan, it's a great, it, like it's, it's a great day. It's like it's a great time because we are not only here with you know with their buddy Chris Allen, we are joined in by a overly sexualized Blake Bortles, which is right behind you. Hold on. And a, and a in motion. Can Wait. you over sexualize somebody that's just a blatant <laughs> sex icon like Blake Bortles? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know if you can overly sexualize it, but we can definitely be overly aroused by it. So I got something for you, and we'll introduce Chris here in just a second, even though it really needs no introduction. I got something for you, though. Uh, so I was in Walgreens the other day um, to pick up. Flew for infant water, and it was the only Walgreens in the area that was open till midnight. And they had this weird pack hanging in the trading card section. It was just like this generic picture of a football player. And I'm like, well, let me grab this and see what it's about. And I open it up, and it's full of, like, older trading cards, just an assortment, and then, like, college packs, randomly enough. Like, there was a Chris, Chris Bosch card and a Georgia Tech pack, because that somehow means football. Um, but I got a Blake Bortles UCF card out of that. Oh, nice. And a hollow Kenyon Barn Kenyon Barner. But you know. Hollow. Yeah. Hey Alex, thanks. Um yeah, we're gonna try to do more of that. Um last last week's format we did uh we did a beer bracket. So we did a uh uh craft beer basically we had eight of them, I think. And we broke it down eight. and ran yep. through that way. We this will be closer to the episode we did before with Stompy. Without further ado, though, um, I guess let me introduce the show and introduce our guests. So it's going to be a major. We're obviously going to talk the Sam Darnold trade and everything that's gone on in the NFL over the last week. Um, talk a little bit of rookies, but a large part of this episode is going to be homebrew talk. And that um, Dan has an interest in it. I attempt to do it. Chris does it very well. So. Um, we're going to talk a, a lot of homebrew, the art that is that, uh, get a little bit more into the beer side of a beer field is kind of a nice, easy episode before we start hitting the draft really hard next week in the, in the ramp up to that. Um, so before we jump into it though, uh, we do have our guest. If you haven't figured that out yet, we've gone three minutes now without introducing him. So I'm going to do that contributor for four, four, four football, number fire, NBC sports edge formerly Real World, DLF, co-host of the Dynasty Manual podcast, master home brewer, the man, the myth, the soon-to-be legend, Chris Allen. Chris, how are man, you? I, I don't even know if I can like follow up on that, man. I, I, <laughs> I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been, it's been too long, gentlemen. Uh, I mean, it has. Yeah, but this is, this is great. I mean, I'm happy to hop back on with you guys and yeah, but there's some news before the draft. I'm, I'm happy to talk ball. I'm definitely looking forward to that. But yeah, let, let's talk about some let's talk about some hobbies, man. Let's talk yeah. about some homebrew. So let, yeah. let's get into it. Have some fun, shall we? Yes. All right. Um, let's go ahead and get straight into it. We're gonna talk homebrew, but we're also drinking. So we gotta introduce that first as we start off every episode. Yep. What's fueling beer fueled? Dan, why don't you go ahead and start us? Boom. All right, I am drinking local to my area, Hand of Fate, 
This is their new beer called Hopstrosity. This is a double dry hop, triple IPA on the label itself. And I and I briefly talked about this as Hopper yesterday. They dip hopped. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, Chris. I went and did some nerd out research on it at work because it was, uh, I was like, did they mean to put something else? Cause I've never heard of it. I'm not, I've never heard of dip hopping before. Um, so they dip hopped and then obviously dry hopped this this IPA with uh, the Citra, Mosaic, Amarillo, Otto, Seven, and Simcoe. Interesting. Now, I've heard about dip hopping. That's like a, a Japanese technique, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I've never tried it myself. It definitely looks interesting. I'm just wondering... Uh, I've always wondered like how the flavor profiles change and what utilization rates that like, you get out of uh, out of the hops if you do it that way. Yeah. Uh, but I'll I'm planning on trying it here within the next like few months. I'll probably try it over the summer because those types of hops that you just mentioned, I mean, those go great with like summer beers. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. And like and like so like like I guess during the research, it brings up as another way to help to um, you know to help lower the bitterness and to help bring out the hop aromas and everything yeah. like that. Yeah. So. It's, it's like a more of a nerd out way, I guess, to say it instead of doing like the like yeah. whole dry up, you know, thing where right, there's right. no bitterness to it. It looks like it's like flame out, but turned up to eleven, basically. Except not really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. That's just doing a quick read up on it. We'll talk about hop schedules and stuff here in a little bit. We're gonna like go way nerd here in just a minute but yeah we'll talk about hop schedules and why that adds aroma and some of the different um ways you can get that here coming up um so i've actually got as part of this i've got some homebrew here with me so i got two things i've got um the very very last of a poblano amber ale um which was supposed to be a porter, but there was an accident there, so I want to drink this and talk about the recipe there. And then I've got a just bottled two weeks ago, still bottle conditioning session IPA, um, done with Ariana, Sabro, and Eldorado hops. So uh, more on that coming up as well. Very nice, very nice. What do you uh, got, Chris? For me, um, so I want to at least show you guys this. Um, I just finished it earlier, and that's what's it's sitting on like my wall of fame that you guys see back behind yeah. me. <laughs> And I'm constantly adding to it, uh, but this is a this is a Dunkel Dunkelweizen uh, by Great Lakes Brewery. And for anybody that doesn't know me and my beer taste, I I'm definitely not a beer snob. I mean, if you catch me on the right weekend, you'll probably see me sipping a uh, like a can of Colt 45. But uh, <laughs> uh, like I'm I'm a sucker for can art. I mean, if the can looks good, I mean your beer could just be absolute piss water, and you'll probably sucker me into buying a six pack. Uh, but this is actually uh, this is pretty legit. I mean, Great Lakes. I don't think I've tried something that I haven't really liked like from mm-hmm. them. Uh, but just to, the but the combination of flavors that they have in here. So it's an ale with chocolate, orange peel, and cold brew coffee. Oh, nice. Which, yeah, which definitely uh, it like it it piqued my interest. And the and the blend that they used in order to put this together was just absolutely perfect. Uh, the coffee aroma hits you, hits your nose, uh, but then uh, from the flavor perspective, uh, you definitely get the the orange peel like right off the bat, and then the chocolate just immediately smooths that over. And I mean, it's just it's a very it's a very well balanced blend of flavors that you wouldn't typically think would go together. Mm-hmm. And so I I I, I like, really like the way that they they put this one together. I would really love to find a um, like a clone recipe and try some. I'd probably screw it up 
and add like, yeah. more, like too much orange peel or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I think for, for what it is, uh, I mean, at six and a half percent ABV, I think this is a solid beer. Well, and it's a Dunkel. You said it was a Dunkelweizen? Yeah. With adjuncts. Uh-huh. That's rare in and of itself because exactly most of the time when you're brewing a dunkel wise and that beer has so much flavor regardless most people just let it stand on its own right just from the grain bill like you typically wouldn't add a bunch of stuff Mm. to it so that's like a dunkel with chocolate orange peel and cold brew all right let me just go ahead and get a six pack of this six pack of this (laughs) and i was looking at the can i was looking at the can art too and i was like ah yeah you you got me you got me can you lift the can up again oh yeah yeah it reminded me of some like some like pipe work stuff like i i this you know i still work for benny's and i see a lot of great lake stuff for now and it, it does yeah yeah right for now it doesn't like they they did a whole revamp of their packaging and that that may be the first thing i've saw that actually looks like it looks like, good you know, fantastic yeah. from them in terms yeah of the can art. yeah well and, I, was just, I was really impressed and yeah. good on them as far as revamping their artwork and everything because i mean you know, we know Great Lakes. We've had them on the show, but packaging definitely didn't draw you, draw you to it on the shelves, given everything no. that was around it beforehand. Yeah, it, no, it's it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'll just go with that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, let's get into some news here real quick. Uh, just a couple items to talk about, and then we'll we'll get into the fun start. We're gonna get the football out of the way so we can talk about the important stuff. Yep. yep uh, football first. Eagles signed Jordan Howard to a one-year deal. This is more. It's a depth signing, so don't don't freak out. Don't start a Jordan Howard hype train. Uh, great for Miles Sanders. Yeah, great for Miles Sanders. Right. Exactly. Uh, Bengals released running back Gio Bernard. So end of an era there. Also, watch for somebody to land in Cincinnati. Reason I say that, well, Joe Mixon's good and is the unquestioned starter and going to have Belkow workload. Joe Mixon also has problems staying on the field. So, but your boy Samaje Piran is the backup. I don't <laughs> think they'll draft really at, like they may spend a, a day three pick. Yeah, guy, but I don't think there's no need for them to go out. They have too many other issues. Well, and it doesn't even have to be somebody they draft, right? You get a day two, day True. three pick. You have. Depth. I mean, we've we've seen it with like Brian Hill, you know, Smith, um, you know, uh, Justin Jackson, guys like that that are you know picked up sixth, seventh round, fourth, whatever. Yeah, they have intermittent value because they're handcuffed at that point. So something to watch. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, in larger news, and eh, we'll save the larger news for the end. Uh, in not larger news, but something to be aware of, and if you're a Bears fan like me, throw things about Matt Nagy uh, going to return to play calling duties for the 2021 season after relinquishing them in 2020. So, um, don't expect great things. Just fire that whole staff. Right. Yes. You did well. Should have been done this year. I've said it a ton on yeah. the show. Should have been done this year. And then when everybody was pissed off about the Andy Dalton signing, I was happy about the Andy Dalton signing, not because I'm stoked about Andy Dalton, because that means the fact that they signed a one-year bridge quarterback tells me that at least whoever replaces Nagy and Pace at the end of this year is going to have, you know, draft capital and not a giant quarterback contract to go out and get their guy and not be side-saddled with somebody from a previous regime. So the, the Andy Dalton signing, I was fine with it in that light because I have to deal with mediocrity for another year, but at least it's a true reset starting next yeah. season. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
and other things that make sense, Panthers acquired Sam Darnold from the Jets in exchange for a 2021 sixth rounder and a 2022 second and fourth rounder. So they're also trying to move Teddy Bridgewater. I think that's the other big note. They've they've come out and said that this does not exclude him from taking a quarterback at pick eight. Who knows if they if they move Teddy? I think that's what they'll do. If they if they don't, then they may just wait till next year. Um, good on the Jets for getting a second round pick, even for next year. I think that's a fantastic move for them. That that gives them more top fifty picks because we know the Panthers probably won't be a great team in this upcoming year. I mean, they may surprise some people that have good, they still have good offensive pieces. Now I do like how they're building their defense, but that's still a very strong division. Yeah. And but it doesn't set up as a team. that's necessarily going to have high draft capital. They could have middling draft capital. No, I'm, I'm yeah. yeah. For, so I'm saying wherever Carolina ends up, I, I think, I think that second round pick, there's a good chance. That's a top 50 pick. That's yeah. Top 50 pick at it. I mean, they would have to be a playoff team. The Panthers, would have to be a playoff team for that pick not to be. Well, essentially. the question: Do you believe in? Do you still believe in Darnold at only twenty three years old and the talent that was there, and that he was really side saddled by the coaching staff and side saddled by kind of a, a lack of weapons? Like, do you believe in that? And do you believe that the Panthers do use the number eight pick on a quarterback and bring in some competition? Because that's the other thing to keep in mind with this draft class. Number picking eighth doesn't mean the guy that's coming in, if they use it on a quarterback, is a, an immediate starter. We expect the guys yeah, at the immediate exactly. starter capital to be gone by pick eight. So, I mean, it, 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 it's going to all depend. Like we've seen, you know, we've seen quarterbacks come in, you know, during, you know, training camp and preseason, earn their spot. My guess would be if they pick that, you know, if they take that player at, at pick eight, it'll likely be. Either Trey Lance or Justin Fields. I think based on all the rumors that we've been hearing, um, and then based on how you feel about them starting to start day one, sure, um, you'll probably hear them say, "Well, Sam Darnold's our starter," and they'll, they'll say that up until we've are shown and proven that the rookie quarterback is a better prospect, or at least is a better player to play from day one, you know, than Sam Darnold. Darnold still also has to beat out Teddy Bridgewater if if they don't get him. And it's not like there's a massive step up, you know, between talent wise. Uh, it's all based on fit, and, and we'll see what happens with it. I just don't think the Panthers are going to be a playoff team this year. So and that's why I think it was a good move for the Jets to get essentially a top 50 pick in next year's draft. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. That's all. That's really what it is. I like the. Really, I like the trade for both teams because while the Jets get another top 50 pick, the Panthers didn't give up a whole lot. And mm-hmm. it's a high upside type play. You know, we, Sam Darnold's a guy that um, most everybody liked coming out of S- SC. He was an early early declare. Um, so he's still only 23 years old. Super young. Um, ton of talent. And as we belabored on the show, is a guy that wasn't necessarily set up for success. He had the... The bout with mono, which for anybody that's had it, like completely zaps your your strength and you know any form of ability to do much. And then you had the bout with Adam Gase, which is you know also a disease, probably worse than mono. <laughs> and then um, you know your number one receiver is Robbie Anderson. You had no running game, so to speak, of his the entirety of his career to help take pressure off of him. The defense was his 
was relatively terrible, at least the last two seasons. Um, you know, he wasn't in a position to develop or do well. So with him landing in Carolina, that kind of changes. And it's a good upside trade for them because it gives them a starter that can help them win. If it pans out and Darnold is as talented as I think Sam Darnold is, then they got a steal. And it's going to show this year because he does have weapons around them. Like Dan mentioned, you've got DJ Moore. You've got his back with Robbie Anderson, but you got... Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, I've seen those memes. Those have been great memes. You got yeah, Christian McCaffrey. Um, you know there are. I expect them to probably add a receiver at some point. I mean they've got weapons there, and the defense. You know Jeremy Chen, great pick last year. They have good pieces on defense, and the defense was playing better than you know what I thought it should have. And they have a good young offensive-minded head coach. Darnold's in a position to succeed here. Um, if you're in a super flex league, I'm kicking the tires to see if I can subsequently get a similarly low value deal, but I'm doing it after the draft because if they do take a guy like Justin Fields or Trey Lance, I still expect Darnold's a starter. Um, we know my feelings on Trey Lance, which is I think he's an awesome talent, but I think he, you know, small school guy is going to come in and develop and not be handed the job. It's kind of like Jalen Hurts. Um, is going to come in and not necessarily be handed the job, even though he's supremely talented. Um, and, you know, could make the same argument for, you know, Justin Fields just had some holes in his game that I didn't necessarily like. And, you know, would be saying the same thing if it was like a Mac Jones going here, or for some reason it's a guy like Kyle Drask or, or Kellen Mond. I mean, it doesn't really matter what the quarterback is outside of the top three. It's kind of the same scenario where I expect Darnold's going to get a chance to prove it. And I still think he has a talent to prove it and the pieces to prove it. What are your thoughts, Chris, on this? I'm of two minds on this one uh, where I, I get the, I get the idea that uh, I get the allure of pairing a, a quarterback that we've seen have like legitimate QB one week, like not the overall QB one, but at least top 12 weeks hasn't happened a lot, but I get that. And now combining him with a, more pass-friendly offense, a more pass-happy uh, pass offense. Uh, Carolina was, over the past couple of seasons, I think they were eighth in neutral passing rate in 2019, but then after the switch to Rule and Brady, I think they fell back to about 12th or 13th in neutral passing rate uh, this past season. So, I mean, that uh, that gives Darnold more opportunities to shine. He has the weapons to around him uh, in order to, I guess, at least elevate his play or at least, yeah. you, know, the, mm-hmm. you know, bail him out like when he needs to. So I, I get that. On the other hand, it, in, in my head, I'm almost thinking, well, didn't, didn't, weren't we saying the same things about Teddy Bridgewater last season? Well, I wasn't, but like, a, a lot of folks were <laughs> I know. like, they were, t- they were talking themselves into like, well, like Dan- Teddy Bridgewater, like now like, okay. So Teddy Bridgewater, he just had, Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara, but now he gets Christian McCaffrey, he gets DJ Moore, he gets Curtis Samuel, he gets all oh, the brought in Robbie Anderson. So now Teddy Bridgewater can now uh, Teddy Bridgewater QB one. Let's do it. And it's like I don't. I'm trying to squint and see and like the same and have the same amount of optimism for Sam Darnold. But since he came into the league in 2018, he ranks 50th out of uh, 58 passers in terms of overall EPA per play since, 20, uh, since 2018, 45th in completion percentage over expected. 
Uh, it's like I get all the things that have happened to him. He's been gaced. He had a bad offense. Mm-hmm. I mean, the really his only weapon was Robbie Anderson for a time. I mean, and there's no slander to Jameson Crowder. Don't get me wrong, but we've seen offenses try to operate through a slot receiver. It just doesn't work. It, it doesn't. It doesn't work. Yeah. So I get the context of his situation, but you think that he would at least be able to elevate the talent around him, and we haven't seen him be able to do that. So I'm just kind of meh on the whole thing. And I guess, and also from a team building perspective, why would you, why would the Panthers go out and essentially dump all this money into Teddy Bridgewater? Because he still has like a hefty dead cap hit in this season. So why dump all this money into Teddy? And if you want to do this hard reset at the quarterback position, why is it slow? How is Sam Darnold your answer? Now I get that they're, I get that they were in the hunt for Deshaun Watson and his current situation completely took him off the, off the table. But if, but still, how do you go from possible Deshaun Watson to Sam Darnold, and then also not try and move into the, and also essentially not do the same thing that San Francisco did, move up in the draft, so that they can put themselves in a position to get one of these quarterbacks. So if they want to fight over, uh, you know, Trey Lance or you know, I don't know whomever is going to, if they think that it's going to go, Lawrence, Wilson, Jones. And they need to move up in order to possibly, I mean, Fields could be still sitting there at eight. Mm -hmm. It's entirely possible. But if they felt that they needed to in order to get a quarterback in this draft class, then I thought that they would have made a push and move any draft capital that they have in order to secure that spot, in order to just like tell the league, like we're on the quarterback hunt. Mm -hmm. Signing a guy or making a trade with those assets that they did in order to get Sam Darnold, it doesn't indicate to me that they're still in the quarterback hunt. It's possible, but... If they were going to make this hard reset, I think that they should have done it with a little bit more oomph to it. Because like you like you pointed out, I think, Dan, you were saying it earlier. I mean, this is not a team that's going to the playoffs this year. There, there's no way that they are contending with. I mean, there's no way they're beating out Tampa. That, right. That's for damn sure. And at best, I mean, they're at the best. They're behind uh, Atlanta or maybe competing with Atlanta. I well, mean, depends I on how you, badly Atlanta underperforms again. Right. right? I mean, they, they <laughs> might competing with Atlanta, but then they're, I don't see how they get past New Orleans. I mean, regardless of what right. you think about the New Orleans quarterback position, I mean, their defense is still going to run right over them. So this is not – they're still going to be in the same spot that they were at the end of this season as they were last season. Yeah. Fair. With no, uh, with no draft capital in order to improve their situation in 2022. Well, I mean – so if they've given Teddy the ability to seek a trade, which might be hard at this point, I mean, there is a chance mm-hmm. that they recoup that second rounder or a yeah. third rounder and flip that. I think they still have their first next year. Um, yeah. As far as Bridgewater goes, it's kind of an interesting perspective to compare, for me, my feelings on Bridgewater versus Darnold. Because, again, I was not one of them that was pounding the table of, Teddy Bridgewater QB1. It was Teddy Bridgewater game manager. This is CMZ's offense, but adequate game manager. And <coughs> he was. <laughs> I think that the biggest difference in my evaluation comes in kind of from a, a raw talent and arm talent type of perspective, if you will. Um, but I agree with, you know, elevating the talent around you and that type of stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, like I guess... My only other, the only other point to belabor there is, I mean, when the talent around you is Braxton Berrios and Quincy Anunua, 
outside of yeah. Robbie it's Anderson like, and Jamison Crowder. Like, right. That's yeah. a massive upgrade for it's like from it's like Dan trying yeah. to elevate me every week. It just doesn't. <laughs> Ooh, it's yeah. a tough task. Sometimes it pays off. I'm like a, you know, a co-host one every now and then, but generally I play at the two level. Yeah, that was an insult to myself. Yeah, yeah. That, that's why I get the allure. It's just, man, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to be like negative, like no slander against him because, yeah, mm-hmm. he has been dealt a raw deal, absolutely. But I mean, how much can we really see the Panthers as an entire offensive unit improving under under Sam Darnold? Right. Well, and, and we'll the, the, the other thing is too is it, it's a one year investment, right? Right. Yeah. It, it's. It's a one-year investment. If they do take somebody at eight, which I'm assuming would be Trey Lance or Justin Fields, mm-hmm. you get a chance to see that development um, and decide if that's it or not. But I also kind of agree with you that spending that draft capital to me takes them out of the out of the quarterback race because if you do draft Trey Lance and Justin Fields, you either better be sure, and if you're sure, you better be at least leapfrogging Detroit to get there, which is only one position, but you still better at least be leapfrogging Detroit. Um, And if you're not sure, what you're basically saying is, I'm going to invest my first-round pick in quarterbacks and back-to-back drafts. Right, which makes no sense. Exactly. Makes no sense when you don't play, when I don't think they're in, you know, an Arizona situation where they're in for a regime change or anything like that. So, and I haven't done a ton of like a ton of uh, in-depth look at the 2022 class, but from everything that I've heard so far, it doesn't seem like the prospects coming out next year from a quarterback perspective, even it's hold a pretty, candle to what we've got it's right now. Not, yeah. It's like 19 level up. You don't have a Kyler Murray, like unless yeah. like a Spencer Rattler or like, I think he's the one person that a lot of us are holding on to hoping that he mm-hmm. elevates himself to that play. Because I don't see it from Sam Howell, and I I don't expect it from, you know, from a Keaton Slovis. So yes, you're right. At least right now, without anything, you know, being played for next year. Yeah, it's a pretty weak quarterback yeah. class. Right. Yeah, I mean, you figure the guys you just mentioned, and then, you know, what Desmond Ritter is probably your tier two there. I mean, it's, it, it depends how he, yeah. he has to have a strong. He's got to have another strong, strong year. Cincinnati. So so it, yeah. it's just one of those things that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. But the reason they could be in play for a quarterback there is, I, you know, looking at the order, you, you, I do assume I am of the opinion that it goes Lawrence, Wilson, McCorkle, and then you have, you have Atlanta, who is trying to move back. So, I mean, possibility. The Broncos are moving up for sure. I think the Broncos are going to move up. See, I think Carolina with could still try to, with the 2022 first in hand and stuff, could still try to make a play to jump yeah. up to four. Um, but, you know, also it's just looking at the positional needs in front of him. Since he's not spending a first-round pick on a quarterback, Miami's pretty much told us that they're not. And right. Detroit traded for Jared Goff. They probably should spend a first-round pick on a quarterback. But if they do, you're still going to get the door prize of Trey Lance or Justin Fields, which you're I mean, okay with. Both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I agree Either. with both of them. So, I mean, if it happens, it's a, I mean, we talk about this as, as a dream landing spot, almost because of the playmakers around and because of the, of the minds. I think people believe that, you know, Matt rule and Joe Brady can bring a lot of excitement when they get their own guy. So I don't know if I'm sold on them taking a quarterback at pick eight, 
we're going to see because if, if they like Darnold and if they believe in Darnold, they're not picking a quarterback at eight there. Mm-hmm. They may try to, you know, either piece together that defense a bit more or add another high-end playmaker to the offense and then really see what they have. Yeah. Yeah. But we beat this horse. We did indeed. Pretty bloody. We beat this horse. <laughs> Let him go grab pits. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway, he's there. I don't fireworks. think he's, gonna, he's not going to be at a pick. I mean, I've seen Mox on Blanda. He's not well, Hawkinson, Gasicki. So, unless Cincy or Atlanta does it, Cincinnati takes Kyle Pitts. Yeah. If Cincinnati just like take Kyle Pitts, that city will like burn to the ground. Yeah, well. And that's like, and that's my city, man. It's just. Mm-hmm. As uh, Joe Burrow, you know, goes to Andrew Luckway because they refuse yeah. to put actual put, put an offensive line around him. We got you another move, yeah. tight end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I hate I keep hate seeing the Jamar Chase. I would love to see him land here, but I also want to see Burrow play a full season. So I don't want to see. Yeah, Chase landing there would hurt T Higgins. I don't want you don't hurt yeah, T Higgins. Maybe. Um, anyway. Yeah. Dan, I'll let you uh, lead the question and do... answer portion. We're going to do just one more rookie question, and then we're going to jump into the actual homebrew part of it. I just got to ask you because, obviously, you're you're embedded into the football industry. I know you're on a, a bit of a break, and we're going to definitely pick your mind about beer. But I got to ask you in the show, and we got to talk about some rookies some more. Just one question. Who are your favorite rookie prospects? It doesn't have to be – it can be high-end. can be some low-end guys. It's who who is getting you excited uh-huh. Um, I would say the the one because uh, wide receivers has kind of been like my thing because when I came into this when I came into the industry like I kind of I was following uh, Matt Harmon uh, mm-hmm. a lot in his process actually just got a chance to talk with him uh, last awesome. Friday on a, a show that I was doing um, great dude to talk to if you ever get a chance to um, but uh, <laughs> wide wide receivers are kind of like kind of my thing and it cracks me up that a guy like Jamar Chase can take a year off and still be like far and away one of the best like receivers in this class. And it, I mean, it's almost to me, it's almost not even close. And that that's just, that the, my, my personal opinion. And I think a lot of folks like have like Jamar Chase up, up as their wide receiver one, yep. but it, like just flip on his tape, watch a few games and like, I mean, most of the folks, I mean, y'all know me. I mean, I'm, I look at it. I approach things more from an analytical perspective. Yep. And once you break him down and look at, I mean, 3.5 yards per route run, according to PFF, I mean, that's ridiculous. Like for, for a college prospect, I mean, his uh, success rates against man, man and press coverage. I mean, the guy is a, I mean, he's your prototypical like wide receiver one. I mean, his ability to like to beat man press coverage at I think is like over at about a ninety percent success rate, uh, almost a fifty percent uh, contested catch rate. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous that, I mean, that he was able to. I mean, when he opted out, I mean, obviously like LSU. I mean, they still had playmakers or whatever like uh, behind him, but it's just he takes the year off. I mean, obviously still working. I mean, takes the year off is probably. I mean, that's, I mean, over uh, oversimplifying the situation, but. He's still by far and away one of the better receivers in this class. Yeah, it's, it's such an insane profile too. It's it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, and still goes out and runs. You know, he runs a four four. Uh, was a four three four three five four three four uh, four three nine four four like a you know pro day adjusted. Uh, but regardless, I mean, like he has all the tools there that you would want from your primary X receiver. 
And so that's why, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm saying it right now. If the Bengals take him, I'm not going to be mad about it. (laughs) I mean, because I, again, I just, I like seeing, I like seeing potent offenses. I like seeing offenses where, I mean, you have multiple weapons that can, that can hurt you in, in multiple ways. And just like, I mean, we're mad about Kansas City because if it's not Travis Kelsey, it's Tyreek Hill. And if it's not Tyreek Hill, then at least in 2019, it was Damian Williams out of the backfield. I mean, there there were multiple ways that Kansas City could kill you. And even with Cincinnati and like T. Higgins kind of becoming their star, I mean, it's just it's T. Higgins, it's Tyler Boyd, and then it's just bleh. I mean, Joe Mixon now is being pushed into the RB1 range, but it's like, can he can he stay healthy? Can, will he really get back to the uh, like ten plus percent uh, like uh, target share that he was like before he went down? So I like the idea of making your strengths stronger. And if they want to lean on Joe Burrow as a passer, because they really were. I mean, he was what forty five pass attempts per game. Yeah, I mean, was he insane. he was gunning it. So I, I could see that start to be like you know how they want to formulate their offense. So I know the traditionalists. And the I mean, even me, the rational side of me says that you, you take Sewell then and just be done with it. But if they were to take a guy like Jamar Chase, he's one of my favorite guys to, to watch out of this class. And I think he's for me, he's the top guy. I mean, other guy that I'm looking at, uh, I mean, maybe just again to let my uh, Ohio uh, bias show. I mean, it's Justin Fields. Uh, I mean, Ohio State, I know they don't have a great track record of putting out quarterbacks. I get it. Uh, we just watched the Dwayne Haskins experience, you know, <laughs> fail and, you know, Cardell Jones and just forget about it. Um, but I mean, Justin Fields, I mean, he's by far and away one of the better prospects they've had come out of Ohio state in years. Uh, and if it's not for um, his, uh, his average depth of target, it's for his, uh, his, like his arm strength is, I mean, through the, through the roof. I mean, I know his processing speed isn't really what we want it to be at, but if it's not that, I mean, his it's his ability to actually like move within the pocket. I know that he gets a lot for uh, being a, a mobile quarterback, but it's actually one of the things that has caused him to take a lot of sacks is because he'll wind up sitting in the pocket longer. And it's a stigma that's like, you know, I don't want to be perceived as a rushing quarterback, so he'll stay in the pocket longer and he'll get clocked and wind up breaking, a, you know, a couple of ribs in the process. But <laughs> I think the tools are all there. I really wish that it was him going to San Francisco. I'm still hoping uh, I'm hoping that that's where it goes. Although the Mac Jones hype train is off the rails at this point. Uh, But he's like Justin Fields is not one of those guys that regardless of where he lands at. I know the next best place for Justin Fields. Honestly, if it's not going to be San Francisco, if Bill Belichick got his hands on a guy like him, I think that would be an awesome transition to go from Cam Newton to Justin Fields. I think that'd be great. Um, but either way, I think that's uh, another one of the, like, those are my two top guys, like in the, in this class, I mean, to say nothing about the, uh, the running backs, of course, I mean, it's Najee Harris and then, you know, the guys afterwards, Javante Williams has started to pop a bit more, but either way, um, I mean, it's Jamar Chase, it's Justin Fields, like it's those guys I'm really trying to pay attention to at this point and like see where they go in the, uh, in the draft. For sure. Yeah, no, we're, we're. I mean, we've had a lot of, you know, between, you know, between Hopper and I, we've had a lot of debates between, you know, Fields and Wilson, but those debates are stem from because we both love the prospects. We just love mm-hmm. the other ones a little bit more. Yeah. This, like, this feels like generally when you get five quarterbacks that are this highly regarded, there's always, well, at least one that I, I tend to fade more so, and I can't find that. I'll, like, I have to kind of be on the other side of Zach Wilson that, 
but that's because my co-host is absolutely in love with them. Right. You've got to level me out. Thing. you got to level me out. I try my best <laughs> Yeah, to, that's your job. But I, I, I also love Zach Wilson in, in the same aspects. It's the same thing for Fields, you know, with him or Trey Lance for him where – I'm very mm-hmm. high on. Yeah, kind of Trey Lance is probably yeah. Trey Lance is the one that I'm doing more of a balancing act on than Justin Fields. I think yeah, that's true too. So because you're higher on, yeah. I mean, the love you've shown Lance is greater than Fields. I think Fields, we both generally have the same opinion, and the difference is just Wilson. Mm-hmm. But no, that's um, yeah. yeah, as far as. So I've been watching wide receivers this week, so I'm going to give you two wide receiver cuts that jumped out for me. Sure. Um, one of them has been obvious to everybody else for the rest of the offseason. I'm doing film late. Elijah Moore. I love, love, love. I watched him tonight. I love, love, love me some Elijah Moore. Um, <laughs> you won't beat me on that low. I promise no. you right now, and you will not surpass me in my imagination. I mean, uh-huh. first off, <laughs> the athletic profile is awesome like i don't care that he's five nine because the athletic profile is good enough to play outside but the route running was solid the depth of his routes was very very good quick cuts super agile um catches everything that's anywhere near his vicinity the only knock that i had on elijah moore is that he's five nine other than that totally okay with it because he is quick enough and athletic enough and his routes are good enough to play outside at five nine and he's a hell of a mismatch in the slot so um just super reliable like i said good route runner great hands great profile um both from a college productivity standpoint and from a athletic standpoint um there's not a lot there on elijah moore for me to to not like or for me to hate on you know obviously he's gonna sit behind you know jamar chase and and bateman but, you know, to mm-hmm. me, he's easily in that second tier. Um, the other guy that I like for different reasons is um, Amon Ross St. Brown. And it's oh, not because yeah. I look at yeah. him and think that this guy's ever going to be a consistent wide receiver one. It's because I look at him and say, well, this guy could regularly be a wide receiver two, three, useful type of piece to have on your roster that's not going to demand a high, high amount of rookie draft capital. You know, athletic profile wasn't fantastic. You watch his tape, you know that he's not going to burn guys or or make big plays, but he's another guy that had reliable hands. He was, his athletic profile says that he's probably going to be better suited for the slot um, than he is outside, and I kind of see that on tape too. He plays a little bit of both, but um, again, just nuanced route runner, good hands, reliable, catches nearly everything that's thrown his way not quite Elijah more reliable mm-hmm. um and just good body positioning is a bigger frame at six one so um one of few actually bigger receivers in this class by the way there's not a ton mm-hmm. um it's pretty skinny yeah <laughs> yeah so. I blame Rashad Bateman for I, I blame the Gophers for making Bateman seem bigger than what he is. <laughs> yeah, so they I'm did, sad, and sad then you've that. got Smith, who's tall but really thin. So outside of yeah of Chase and you know, I guess make an argument for Waddle. Uh, St. Brown's really one of the only guys you're looking at you know the top that has size to him, and it's unfortunate that he profiles as more of a slot receiver given his speed and agility scores and everything. Mm-hmm. But it's also fortunate because if he's utilized in the right way as that possession type of receiver and not the guy that's going to go 
game break or anything like that. If he's utilized kind of in a way that like Michael Thomas is utilized, for example, not comparing him to Michael Thomas, but that would kind of be the ideal sort of utilization in the NFL as a bigger slot guy. I really like, yeah, I really like St. Brown. So Mm -hmm. um, we'll see where, you know, he's the type that if his ADP were to, for some reason, skyrocket in rookie drafts, then I'm unfortunately going to hate the ADP. But if he sits in the second round, like I think he's probably going to. Yeah, he'll be mid. I'm I'm fine with it. He'll easily be a mid a mid pick, especially in super flex drafts. I think so. I won't give too much. Well, I'll just give one more. Um, we're, we're gonna go one a little bit lower on guy that's out of Florida State. So Timmy on Terry. Um, one of my bigger interests because he's 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 such a polarizing at least in terms of of his athletic build compared to what I think his upside could be. Um, you know, dominant for Florida State at least his sophomore season. I believe he broke out as a freshman as well. Had had to deal with the the inept uh, Florida State passing game. The overall environment wasn't strong, and in, rumors of him hating the fact that he got redshirted his freshman season, I think, led to that. Obviously, there's a big risk here, but I think given his outside his, his upside compared to where you're going to be drafted, him likely a third round pick in superflex drafts. Um, you really can't go wrong. I think he will. I think he'll sneak in. I think he'll sneak into round three. Um, you know, get that day two draft capital. He's got the athletic, or it's got the analytical profile that I think a lot of people like with that early breakout. Um, he is a quote unquote early declare because he's a rusher junior. He's an older prospect, which sucks, but you know, at least he got the early declare base thrown out of that. He's got the dominator rating from his sophomore season. Um, so, and I'm keeping my eye on because if he lands in a team like Kansas City to fulfill that outside role to help replace Sammy Watkins, that would be insane because he's six two. We're in a I think a four three eight. Um, obviously he has the size at six two. I think he's two two eleven two thirteen. Um, it's a lot of intrigue there. Obviously you have drop issues. You have some off the field stuff to it, but put him in an environment that wants to feature him. That's that's not, you know, Florida State's horrible passing. I mm-hmm. think you can get yourself some really good upside to him. Speaking of horrible passing, the first game I watched of Elijah Moore, I wanted to run through the screen and strangle their quarterback. <laughs> the fucking Matt Carroll. He's so bad. He's so <laughs> ah, he's so bad. It's not like he's he's not like Terry. I forgot who it wasn't Blackman, but it was somebody else. It's just anyways. It wasn't right. it wasn't Matt yeah, Matt Corral. Yeah. Yeah, he pissed me off. Yeah, he's bad. Anyway. All right. Let's get to the uh let's get to the homebrew stuff. Let's get uh let's get to why we brought Chris on. Um, so first question here, bud. What drew you to start homebrewing? What 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 want what was kind of the allure that, that wanted you to start homebrewing? Uh to be honest, uh the thing that Actually, nothing drew me to it, um, and I'll, I'll walk you guys through it because uh, I was playing cards with a buddy of mine, and he said that uh, he had been doing it for a few years prior to uh, prior to us like hanging out, and so I figured I'd try it. Uh, it was just like you know the the basic extract kits. Um, definitely wound up uh, burning a couple uh, because I didn't actually heat up the extract before dumping it in the kettle a couple of times, but um, it was just one of those things that I would just I would 
do. And like, I wasn't, uh, it, it's funny that she used that word to me because I wasn't drawn to it. Right. It's not like I sought it out. It was just something that I, I started doing, but, and I wonder if this is the case for, for other folks that wind up getting into it. It's after you do your first few, uh, first like three, four, five brews, that's when I really got drawn into it. And that's where I really started on like thinking about brewing, like thinking about how I could change this process or add in these ingredients and like, while still trying to understand the process, but it's more about, well, how can I create, how can I actually you know, design a, a new, like this new beer, this new flavor, this thing that I, I would want to, I would want to drink. And it wasn't until after I uh, started doing it for, you know, like nine months, like to a year. And I got, you know, a few brews under, under my belt. That's when I really got like drawn into the hobby because when you first start doing it, and I don't know if this is the case for y'all, but like the first time you're doing it, I mean, you open up that kit, you're reading the directions and you're trying to follow it like to the letter almost. And you're trying to make sure like, do I have all the, like, have I sanitized everything? Like, do I have all this stuff? Is everything at the right temperature? Oh my gosh. It's like four degrees off. So like, what do I do now? It's like, you don't really get the enjoyment of homebrewing like on your, on your like very first brew, because you're so worried about getting everything right. You're so worried about not screwing everything up. And so the process kind of overshadows the enjoyment of what you're doing. I mean, you're making, you're making alcohol. I mean, it's science, <laughs> but it's, it's not until you get a bit deeper into it. That's when you really get drawn into it. And that's, and that's what happened to me. It's like, that's when I started getting sucked into it yeah. where I'd be sitting at work. Like I still remember this to, uh, to this day. I was sitting at work one time and a friend of mine, uh, she, she had texted me and said like, Hey, like I heard you in the home brewing. I've always wanted to try it, but I don't like IPAs. Cause that was the thing I was brewing, like just left and right. It was like IPAs, 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 because that's what everybody was doing. And it turned me into a, like a beer snob, like for a couple of years, but she was like, well, I don't like, uh, I don't like IPAs. So like, what else can you make? And I was like, well, shit, what do you like? You know? And she's like, well, I like these. Um, what was it? The, uh, who makes the uh, line and Kugels? Like they're, they're mm-hmm. summer shandies that were really prop, uh, really popular at the time. And she was like, well, can you make something like that? And I was like, well, yeah. And that's, and that's when like the light kind of kicked on. It's like, I, I really can, I can, I can do this. You know, I can, I can get some grains. I can, you know, try and find some uh, lemon flavoring. I could get some, uh, I think in some cases, some people just take like lemonade. Dump lemonade. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Dump a bunch of lemonade mix into it and do it. But it was like, I can, I can figure out how to do this. I can build something I can create. And that's when I got drawn into it. And that's when it was less about the process and less about freaking out about every single like minute detail which don't get me wrong is still important but you're not as burdened with all of that you're not as like freaking out about every single step so it i probably i wasn't really drawn into it until at least uh, probably like almost a year or so after i started doing it which is where you really start to get a bit more comfortable with the setup comfortable with the process and not always freaking out about, you know, I'm not, not seeing bubbles in the airlock. I need to, I need to open it up. Right. I need to open it up and, you know, start like, you know, stirring shit up. And like, I was like, no, 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 no. Just, you know, let it sit, let it work, Mm -hmm. let the yeast do its thing. And so once you start to experience uh, and understand more about, you know, why things happen the way that they happen and learn some of the ways to troubleshoot things on your own, that's when you can really start to get drawn into it deeper and you can start to have a bit more fun with it 
than you typically would if you just like buy like an extract kit, brew it and say, oh, this was fun. And that, you know, never, never touch this stuff again. So that, that's how it was for me, though. So it was a little different for me. Um, and I think it's because the the starting point's the same, right? I wasn't necessarily drawn to it. I had a buddy that was actually kind of like knew I liked drinking craft beer. Mm-hmm. And I'd been to a couple of competitions with him and stuff just to hang out and whatnot. And he was kind of like, you know, hey, when you get a brew, when you get a brew, I'll teach you to brew when you're ready, when you get a <laughs> yeah. brew. And so I went and finally hung out with him for one brew. He's, first off, tells me, what do you want to brew? So it wasn't, we're going to brew, I don't know where to start, go find this extract kit. Is what He put it to me right off the bat, like, what do you want to create? So mm-hmm. I told him, and he's like, okay, I've got a recipe. And it was a strawberry vanilla cream ale that I first beer I did. And it was, um, he's like, all right, well, I've got a cream ale recipe that uh, I won't give full disclosure, but may or may not be the recipe from a certain brewery that Dan has had a drink of within the last um, 10 minutes or so. (laughs) So, um, uh, so yeah, he had uh, that. And then, so I got to go brew that. And it was different because we didn't really talk about the nuances or the temperature or, you know, gravity or hydrometer readings or anything like that as we were doing it. It was, this is the recipe. This is what the different ingredients are doing for the recipe. Um, You know, nothing on water chemistry. It was just, here's your water volume. Um, Nothing too much on... You know, it was like, all right, heat it to around this temperature and that should mash it about the right temperature and this and that and the other. But it was kind of in a way a teaser enough to where it wasn't all the little things I had to worry about, but it was enough to know that those are things that maybe I should be thinking about, which really just immediately spurred that into hyperdrive of, all right, I want to create this. How do I go do it? Let's go look up recipes. Why are people doing this in their recipe? Why are people doing this in their recipe? Oh, well, now I'm seeing even more about, you know, particular mash temps. Okay, what effect does the mash temp have on beer? Let me go buy a book and read it. And then it's like I've been slowly adding in some of those more nuanced things that you worry about and worrying about them a little more. But not like over worrying about them because I understand that if my mash temp is off by two degrees, it's kind of like, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Or, you know, if I'm, you know, miss a gravity mark by a couple points, it's really not a big deal. That's one thing I swore to myself is I'm not going to worry about BJCP style guidelines or trying to hit numbers. Oh, yeah. Um, So it was a little different to where I never had that that hyperdrive and I think of, you know, follow this recipe exactly. And I think it's one because I wasn't doing kits. I got dropped straight into all grain and straight into, Mm -hmm. you know, put a recipe together and see how it turns out. But there was also a lot more that I think helped the allure and the draw to it because I like to learn. There was a lot more on, okay, now I need to figure out, you know, water chemistry. I need to figure out SR, you know, SRM. I need to figure out, um, you know, different. How do I build my mash bill? Basically, what do you different? What flavors do different grains impart? You know, hop schedule. What does that matter? That type of stuff. And had to go actually research that on my own. Which once you're in the rabbit hole, you're in the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Yep. 
you guys have any favorite beers from you know i guess from earlier on in your process something that that not what you like love now but is there one beer from i guess from the beginning it's a great segue into what i'm drinking oh if you don't (laughs) mind me starting no man go ahead um great segue into what i'm drinking right now actually um so early on my first beer was good but i don't really count that because i didn't do it myself right it was uh, my hand was held and then my second beer i tried to do too much with the third one was a bottle bomb so this is beer number four and it was spurred by and i really enjoy this one i didn't at first um this goes back to patience (coughs) but it was spurred by a trip to arizona and in that trip to arizona we walk into a little spice shop in old town scottsdale and we buy some teas and some spices and the guy you know guy hears me talking about homebrewing and stuff and he's like hey i don't know what you can do for the with this but there's a bar in this area that uses this in cocktails it'd be cool if you could do this in a beer and he hands me basically a two ounce package of smoked mango tea or yeah it was smoked mango tea so i'm like all right what the hell am i gonna do with this and then i was like well mango mango salsa let's do a smoked porter what's something else i can put a twist on and i'm like poblano it's a roasty pepper um let's use pepper in this beer let's use this tea in this beer and i had intended to do a porter out of it so we get to brew day everything's built out and whatever and you know i'm roasting peppers and you now adding them to the the boil and then roasting a few more and keeping them in the oven so they stay sanitized so i can drop them in um fermentation and then you know i'm like okay we're gonna dry hop it on mango tea and see how that goes and i'm pouring the grains into the mash tun and i'm like oh holy shit i forgot to order black patent and i'm already boiling and everything i've got peppers in the oven i can't run to the local homebrew store to fix my mistakes i'm like well what the hell do i have well i had some roasted barley sitting in the closet so instead of darker malts i threw some roasted barley in here and we ended up with an amber so um kind of hard to see on the camera it looks more black but we ended up with an amber um yeah, there's a tinge yeah, i can see yeah. it you can see it and at first i was like Man, that pepper came off way too strong. And was convinced to not drain pour it, but I'm like, man, that pepper is just overpowering everything. It's too peppery, too peppery, too peppery. But the beautiful part about fruits and vegetables, that flavor dissipates first. Mm-hmm. So about six months in, the peppers dissipated enough, but the mango tea and everything still hanging out, where it actually turned into a really, really good beer. So. Long way of saying, mistake turned out happy. That's what this beer is. Um, it's the last one I have on it. On the nose, definitely still get a little bit of sweetness out of the mango um, from the tea um, with a little bit of smokiness. One thing that has faded off of this beer is you actually used to get a tinge of the tea on the back end of it as well. That has since faded away, but the sweetness of the mango is still there on the backbone. As I drink it, there's still nice roasted pepper notes up front. Um, because it's a more of an ale backbone, it drinks, you know, a little bit malty, but also light. Nice roastiness because there's roasted barley thrown into it. 
Um, you know, the pepper is there, but it's subtle. Uh, I've had multiple people have this beer that are saying it's praises um, for something that was a mistake. And out of my early beers, um, you know, my first four to five, if you will, this one really stands out. And it was a mistake to start. We're going to call it the happy mistake if we ever, you know, bottle it. What about you, Chris? What is there? Is there a beer from your early days that that really stuck out to you as you know as one of your favorites? Yeah, if I can find it. Um, yeah, it's actually this one right here. Uh, so this was a custom label that was made. You can actually see my face on it. Nice. Uh, so, <laughs> I can see yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's a uh, so for that brew session, it was actually done at a um, local brewery, uh, Eudora, uh, here in Dayton, and uh, it was a recipe that I put together. I think about a year and a half uh, prior to, because um, like I said, when I, when I first started, it was just like IPAs, just out just out the gate. I mean, just I mean, I had I think maybe like three three or four out of my first five kids were just all IPAs. And it was just, oh yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm a home brewer now, so we drink IPAs. And it's like this is the dumbest thing like ever. Uh, but still, it was one of those things that you know, I was just trying to learn the style, trying to learn the process and, and you know, let's try and get it, trying to get as many brews in as possible. Uh, but one of the guys I was brewing with that had also been brewing for maybe like two, three years like prior to me, uh, he came in with a bottle of a uh, who was it made by? I think it was from Chimay, uh, one of their uh, one of their blondes. And I had one of those, and it was just like like what is this? Like this is one of the like greatest things I've ever had for in my life. Like this is just wonderful. I mean these these like, these Belgian beers. I mean these are great. And that was one of the first times that I had been introduced to a separate style where you really do like it. I mean, you guys have probably like gone down in that rabbit hole of like, yeah. you know the, the Belgian beers. I mean, but mm. there's a lot of rigor that goes into those. I mean, from water chemistry all the way down to all the way down to the yeast. And so, like for this recipe that I put together for it, like I tried to, um, I didn't really dive into the water chemistry. I'm not that. I'm not I'm, like I haven't gotten that deep like into the process yet. But at least from a uh, hop schedule to the bill uh, putting the grain bill together trying to follow as many of like the traditional characteristics as possible and that recipe actually wound up with uh, as close as i could possibly get uh with like the banana notes and and whatnot uh, coming out of it i mean it was just a wonderful tasting beer um, I haven't I haven't actually brewed it in probably a year and a half. And uh I've actually now that now that I'm talking about it, I want to brew five gallons of it now. <laughs> um but it's it's definitely one of it was uh, the reason it stuck out though, it was just one of those game changers for me where like I was talking about earlier, where it's uh, you get inter- introduced to a style, you want to stick with that style, but then once you get deeper into the process and once you have the, once you get more experience, you want to learn more styles. You want to learn about, well, what does it take to make a stout? What does it take to make a porter, amber? Uh, I don't mess with lagers, but that's a whole other deal. Uh, but it's like, what are these other styles that are out there? And like, what does it take in order to, in order to create those types of things? And that was one of the first that got introduced to me. So I was like, I, I have to try this. I have to try and put this together. And I don't, I, I don't know from a competition standpoint if it done well, but at least for me, it was what I was aiming for like when I first had one because I think I, almost like the Pepsi challenge, like where we just had a Chimay like sitting in front of us and they had mine and they compared like, like pretty favorably. And I was like, cool, that's, that's what I want. 
Like, I don't, I don't need some gold standard or anything like that. I just want something that is like pleasurable to the, you know, like pleasurable in terms of taste, in terms of aroma and kind of fits within that realm or style of drinking. And it did. So that was just absolutely what I was aiming for. And so I try and come back to that recipe like every year or so make some tweaks. Like if I, if I feel like it, uh, but for the most part, that's, uh, that's been like one of my tried and true recipes for seven ish years now, somewhere in there. So, yeah. It's, it's one of my favorites. That's dude. That dude. That makes me want. I may go get some shimmy tomorrow when I'm at work. So, it's, I mean, it's, I mean that style of beer is just one of those that's just like, I don't like. I don't know how it'll never change. Like, yeah, you can it'll never go back to it. Yeah, you can always go back to it. Yeah. So it's, it's like you know what I've I fucked with the fruited Berliners and I've I, I fucked with the massive haze bombs. I want to go back. It's it's, yeah. it's a trend in beer that we're seeing now, where it's it's like. As a whole, it's being just shifted to more of the, you know, of the classic uh, the German style. Beer. And it's a beautiful thing because here's the the thing: those are the people think like, uh, well, this triple dry hopped IPA was probably really hard to do. No, you're no. you're masking deficiencies by throwing a shit ton of hops in yep. Yep. for aroma. Or people think that, well, um, these sours that they're taking everything by storm is hard to do well maybe a little bit half the adjuncts you're adding don't actually do a damn thing because mm-hmm. they're fermenting out but like cream cheese but um you know at the same time you're masking any deficiencies in the beer because you're throwing so many damn adjuncts in there that you can screw up the grain bill and it's fine right but with those classic styles uh, of german beers like you mentioned chris it's you have to be so anal retentive kind of about your temperatures, about your yeast strains, about your mash bill, about, you know, deconcocting, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that, because you have to have the mash bill right. You have to hit those marks because you're trying to generate certain chemicals at certain right. parts in the brew to give certain flavors. Like, you drink a Hefeweizen and you taste banana and clove, it's not because they added banana and clove to the damn beer. It's because right. there are two chemical compounds generated when you're making that beer that you have to try to make happen. Like, it, it's 100% chemistry. For sours, you've got to try to get, which there's some additives in that, but you got to try to get your acid content right. Otherwise, you're mm-hmm. going to be, like, lip pucker and sucker and sucking on a warhead, or it's not <laughs> yeah, going to be there yeah. at all. And... Yeah. and those classic styles of beer, people don't realize how much goes into those and how much harder those are than your I've got 9,000 adjuncts in me type of IPA because of what you have to get right in your temperatures, because of what you have to get right with the chemical compounds that you're generating, because of what you have to get right in your fermentation temperatures and your mm-hmm. yeast strain and how active that yeast is and your carbonation and every little thing that you do will change the character of that beer because it doesn't have anything to hide behind yeah exactly because i'm i'm about to go to uh about to go pick up uh, some grains tomorrow actually and if it doesn't rain on saturday i'll probably wind up brewing um but i am trying to put together one of my favorite beers for the spring slash summertime which is like a one of the like it's a hazy uh, it's a it's a, a hazy nipa mm-hmm. love making those because especially in the spring you know springtime but yeah, I mean, it calls for. I think I've got like twelve ounces of hops like coming going into this thing. 
Yeah. So if so if I want to, I mean, I can I can uh, take a hit in efficiency, but right. you'll never notice it. Right, because I mean, you, you, it's you got twelve ounces of hops going into a yeah. five gallon batch. Yeah, I mean, if I wind up, I mean, I could just dry hop the shit out of it, and like you'll never know. Yeah. But with <laughs> but with, with those beers, I mean, it's it's funny how if you were to compare a grain bill for something like a yeah like a like a Belgian blonde like something like that and compare the, that to a, like a hazy a nipo like whatever i mean you would look at the the grain bill for a blonde and just be like well that's it yeah but no it's like but the the nuances like, you won't see that on the paper yeah right like how important is it for you to hit those targets that are on there and why you have the, like the grain bill set up the way that it is mm-hmm. like you just it's that doesn't come off like when you if you were to walk down to the homebrew store and say like hep these are what uh, this. These are the grains that I need in order to make this blonde, and they'll give you that stuff. But then you could wind up being completely off from the flavor profile, uh, right? Because like the cream ale, for example, is two row, which is for those who don't know, two row is most one Basic, of the yeah. two most common types of barley that you use. Two row and a mare's otter. Yep. Um, but it, it's two row and flaked maize, basically, it is all that goes into a, a cream ale. But you can screw that beer up easy. And if you're looking at a, an IPA, you know, you're going to have two-row Ramirez Otter. You're going to have something in there to help add a little bit of body to it, something in there to help add a little bit of malt backbone to it, to help those hops stand up to where it's not just, you know, bitter and, and floral for New England's, I think. I don't know what your recipe is specifically, but oats are typically in there because of protein content to actually hold yep. the haze and hose things and hold things in suspension. But... You don't have to be as nuanced in the other processes as you were saying. So just mm-hmm. wanted to give a little perspective on what those green bills are because like a cream ale or, you know, I've got a, a Weiss ale in the closet right now fermenting. Grain bill on that one's easy. There's three grains. It, right. It's wheat. Um, it's, yeah, it's wheat, Maris Otter, and a little bit of melanoidin. That's it. Oh, okay. Yeah. But... but um, New England, Anipa, you got a more complicated grain bill, mm-hmm. but you can hide it. It's the same thing with like hop schedule. You know, hop schedule is going to be way more complicated on that one. It is going to matter a lot to the character of that beer. Yeah. But you got 12 ounces. If you're dry hopping it with a shitload of stuff, you're mm-hmm. not going to know if you screwed up a 20 minute hop edition. No, not at all. Cause you're gonna get popped with that. Uh, Cause see, what have, what have I got going to this? I've got citra, citra, lemon drop, uh, galaxy, and uh, mosaic. I think was the fourth one. You're not gonna notice it. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> well, and Dan, like, what are you gonna pick about it? You're gonna pick up a shitload of citrus notes and maybe um, some bitter to to balance it out. Right. Yeah. Yep. And you're not gonna. You're not necessarily going to know, well, you should have added the Citra 10 minutes earlier or any, right, anything yeah. like that. So, Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's a great segue. Oops. Sorry. Does anyone else have any? No. Uh, I was going to segue a little bit into the recipe question, but I'll let you take yep. it. It's a lot more Come fun in. to sit on the other side of this. You're the host. Go. All right. All right. So we talked about recipe. You guys have, have mentioned from early on to what you're doing now. What process... Do you use when you're crafting a new recipe, and and what have you learned, or what have you tweaked 
since right now from when you first started. And we'll start with Chris. We're both Chris. I'll say which Chris. God damn it, you're right. <laughs> we'll start we'll start with whoever wants to talk about it first. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what. Let me start with kind of my process. You're still new to it. Yeah. Yeah, let me start with my process for crafting a new recipe that I'm really interested um for Chris's kind of process and evaluating that recipe and then and then tweaking. Also his process for crafting, but I really want to give him a lot of floor time on the Okay, this was my starting point. Now, how do I make it better? Because you know, I'm just now year and a half into it. I'm just now rebrewing some things and trying to tweak some things to make them better. Because oh, okay. you get through that initial burst, right, where it's like I want to do this and this and this. So you brew like yeah. twelve things one time, and now it's like, all right, I this could have been better. How do I make it better? But mm-hmm. for me, all my recipes start with an idea. They start with. I want to do this, and they're inspired by something. It could be something as simple as my dad drinking a schnickel for it's from UCBC and saying, hey, can you do something like this? Hence why there's a why sale in my closet. Or it could be um, something is, it's about to be summer. I haven't brewed an IPA yet. Let me do a session IPA. Or it could be something as simple as, you know, Man, I like peach cobbler. This is, these are the flavors I like. Let's try to bring that out in a cream ale, which is a recipe I've got sitting there waiting for me. And then what I'll typically do is I'll leverage people that are have done it. Um, so I'll typically go out and Google um, various recipes. There's all sorts of resources out there. And what I'll do is I'll compile six or seven different recipes that are kind of in the area of what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to dissect those recipes and I'm going to reverse engineer it. And I'm going to try to figure out why did they do certain things? And it's going to be, why did they build the grain bill in the way that they built the grain bill? Why did they do the hop additions in the way that they did the hop additions? What flavors are they getting out of those grains? What aromas are they getting out of those hops? Um, what adjuncts did they add? When did they add them? Did they... You know, did they dry hop? Did they flame out? Did they first wort? Did they dip? Did they, um, you know, add adjuncts in at the boil? Did they do it in secondary? Did they do it at bottling? And really kind of see consistencies. And what I'm looking for there is I'm looking for how did you get the flavors out of this beer that are key to this beer? And I'm really looking for um, ratio as well. Um, Particularly what's your total weight of grain because Mm -hmm. that's going to directly impact and what are your percentages as far as what you're adding in there from there i'm going to take that i'm going to break it down and i'm ultimately going to decide well i like this from this recipe i like this from this recipe i liked um that they did this i didn't like that they did this and i'm gonna combine all that into some concoction of okay i think i want to do mine this way and that's going to be based on um Again, just what I find from reverse engineering their stuff. What grains do I want to put into it? Typically, as I break their stuff down, I'll decide, you know, base is base for a reason. So I'll figure out what my base malt's going to be. And then mm-hmm. I'll build out my grain bill from there. And then we'll figure out hops um, based on, you know, bittering versus aromatics and figure out where I want to where I want to add them in. How much do I want to bring out? Because that's really... For our listeners, that's the difference in in your hop schedule. The later you add something in the boil, the more aroma you get off of it. The earlier you add something in the boil, the less aroma you get, the more um, bittering quality and 
kind of flavor qualities get added to it. Um, so from there, um, it then gets plugged into these calculators online that are going to tell me what the ABV is going to be, what the SRM is going to be, what the IBUs are going to be. I said BJCP guidelines be damned. I don't want to yes. brew a blonde ale that's red, for example. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, you got to be, it's kind of a sanity check there. Right? I don't want to brew um, a session that's going to turn out to be 11%. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. because you're you're doing something with some with a certain idea in mind. You're brewing a session. You're not brewing it to be an imperial. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll plug that type of stuff in just to make sure that the numbers are in the general area of where I want them. Yeah, and then from there, I'll I'll write it down, figure out what my temps are going to be, and boom, recipes crafted. And that's really ninety percent of the work. Brewing isn't the hard part. Crafting is the hard part. No, I, I agree. And I, I think that's that's definitely a fair process. And I, I, I go about it in a fairly similar style. Um, I think the, the one thing, though, I think that I've changed over the last few years is that um, uh, I'll, I'll take I'll definitely take the reverse engineering route. But I almost start from a sense of uh, I look at from from two things. One, what do I want my beer to look like? Because um, I've done a couple, I've done a few competitions over the last like few years, and it's it's almost like uh, it's one of those things where I've heard it uh, being said that uh, like we we eat with our eyes. If something looks pleasing, like if a beer looks great, like you know it's uh, got like a, a clear beer with like a thick head or something like that, people gravitate towards because it looks great. Um, depending on what your favorite style is. But so that's one thing that comes to mind is that I like, what do I want my beer to look like? So if I'm in the mood for a hazy beer, okay, well then now we know uh, how that's, how do you get a hazy beer? Like, like, what are you looking for in terms of a grain bill? You know, you got your flaked oats, you might have a, a little bit of two row. If you want to throw in some, you know, crystal 20, crystal 40 in order to change what the overall SRM is going to be, then cool. Uh, whatever the case may be, but at least from a, from a baseline, if I know what I want the beer to look like, that at least helps me form an idea of what that grain bill is going to look like. Uh, the second part is then going to be the, the flavor. Like, am I looking for a, uh, just a, you know, a bitter beer if I'm, you know, if I'm really looking for that IPA like type of, you know, bitterness, or am I looking for a juice bomb? Am I going for another hazy, uh, do I just not even really care? Am I looking for more of a, like a dessert beer? So like I was talking about the blonde, am I looking to try and hit those, you know, banana like type notes? So if I, if I can get some ideas on those two aspects, what it's going to look like, what it's going to taste like, then it's, then I can start to kind of f- like file that into a category because I'm, I'm hundred percent with you, Chris, those BJCP guidelines, my gosh, I've been dinged like so much for trying to like, cause I'll go off the rails when I'm trying to even like enter a beer into a competition. And I'll be like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is not, this is an IPA. <laughs> like, well, this has a like really multi backbone, really, you know, really multi backbone. Well, I was trying to go for this at the same time. So, you know, I just like some of the stuff went around. Right. You know? Well, we're going to give you a 25 out of 50. All right, fine. Screw you guys. I hate you. But yeah, it's they're just not- one of those things. Like you wind up getting dinged for just trying to make what you like see and that's beautiful right there and that's exactly that's actually, uh that's that actually fancy. yeah that's exactly i mean you look at that and see that's what you want to brew so you see that and you want to try and back you know back or reverse engineer what that looks like how would you make mm-hmm. that what do you need in order to in order to do that 
And so like that, I think I saw a similar picture. Oh, what is it? The, um, not, it's not called Mad Treehouse Brewery. Yeah. They have, yeah, they I'm have familiar with Treehouse. Yep. Yeah. The Orange Julius. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah the, the whole, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But, but like, I saw a picture of that uh, on, on Twitter one time and I was like, what the hell is that? And how do I make it? And, like, <laughs> and I just remember seeing a picture of it. And I was like, I want that. So, like, it's that's where it was, you know, what is it? What does it taste like? What does it look like? How do I make something do that? And so if I if I know that and I can kind of work my kind of work my way back into it, then that's how I'll wind up coming up with the recipe. But then I'm very, very similar to you, Chris. If I at least have an idea of what the grain bill is going to look like, what the hop schedule is going to look like in order to get me to what the beer is going to look like, what it's going to taste like. And then I start doing my Google searches, going through the uh, was it the homebrew, uh, Association, homebrew Association. Yeah. Yep. Go through those forums, see what people have done to kind of tweak things, what their process has been, uh, adjust hop schedules as needed, maybe make my own additions, uh, you know, trying to, because I'll go ahead and, you know, tack on uh, maybe a quarter pound of two row, uh, maybe add a little bit more in terms of uh, carapils if I want to, just because I know I'm going to like lose a little bit in efficiency. I can adjust for that on my own. It's just like little tweaks here and there that once you get into it, you understand like where your losses are going to be in your process. Uh, but then you still wind up with a product that matches what you wanted at the start, what it looks like, what it tastes like, what you're aiming for. And that from that perspective, then it becomes much easier to be satisfied with the product because that's what you wanted. I mean, you do the research, you find out how you can create that thing that you're trying to, that trying to create. And then you wind up with something that looks like that. And now I want to go brew because that looks delicious, man. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah, that is uh, I wish I could take credit for that. That's not mine. That's Brent's Dan knows Brent. That's, yep. that's his. Uh, uh, I'm doing. His? Yeah. Um, so I have that. I don't just keep pictures of his beer around randomly. So they were before COVID hit, we're going to open a brewery um, Havana, Illinois. So, Central Illinois, basically. We're about okay. to open one, and I was working on their website for them, so I had pictures of... I don't have pictures of my beers, but I have pictures of their beers hanging around and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then COVID happened, and everything froze or whatever, but I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's Talk To Me Goose. That is a... Uh, it is good. It's yeah, real no, good. It, but It looks good. Yeah, I that, want it. That's yeah, the guy that got me into homebrewing. So mm-hmm. when I told you I had a friend that kept asking me when you're going to brew, it was that guy, and he actually gave me... An all grain setup, you know, his old kettle mash ton that somebody else had flaked on, um, oh, nice. burner, uh, yeah, everything I needed to get started. So, Very which is nice. not, as you know, I mean, it's a, it's a couple hundred dollar investment. So, oh, for sure, yeah. I just switched to the uh, uh, an electric system a couple of years ago. I don't know if I can without messing up my camera, but you can see like my my mash and boil sitting down there, yeah, which has been a a wonderful investment. Since I could literally brew in my office if I want to during the winter time, which is great. That'd be nice. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's it's just one of those things where, like like you said, I mean, you you learn about it, you get invested, you get drawn into it, and so then you start adding things as you as you go along. Yeah. Adding in, I mean, just additional tools, additional equipment, and to the you're to the point where you wind up just having everything. Yeah. No, I just. Like I upgraded a kettle. We're gonna get some temperature control for fermentation in this year, and all sorts of stuff. So, um, one thing in recipe crafting I wanted to ask you about, um, because you know, again, hop schedules in most beers are 
easy hop schedules and IPAs are a little bit different. I just brewed my first session and I, as I tried it the other day, I'm about to revisit it. But as I tried it the other day, I'm like, man, this probably needs some adjustments. I think it needs more hops. I think it needs um, kind of a, a schedule addition. So um, I guess for me, I guess, go ahead, if you will, and discuss like when you're building out your hop schedule, what are you looking for? Is you you put it together? Kind of what's your your thought process as you're building? Is it just fuck it? I'm gonna throw these at the front end, and I want a boatload of citra to come out, so I'm gonna throw that in in a in a dry hop or a you know a five minute. I mean, what do you? How do you structure that? Uh, three things. Mm-hmm. Um, so overall aroma, which I mean, you know, that's pretty much controlled like what you put in at the back end, uh, but also. Uh, that's that initial that, that initial hit like once it hits your tongue like are you are, are you going for that that bitterness do you just want the maltiness of the of the beer and stuff to really like carry the load um, so that's where if I if I want something that's going to um, just hit you in the tongue the the moment that you the, the moment it hits your lips then sure I might uh, you know put in my additions a little bit earlier. So if we're talking, you know, 60 minute boil, um, I might lean towards adding something in maybe quarter to a half ounce at about the 45 minute mark. I don't typically do like something at 60 minutes anymore. That's just personal preference, but I will lean more towards like having something be like an earlier addition. If I want that to be just the thing that you taste like immediately after you, uh, immediately once you put it to your lips. Um, but for, but if, uh, but also the the other part being uh, the the aroma portion. So if I do want the, let's say like earthy tones of like a, uh, let's see maybe even like a Simcoe or like a Cascade or something like that to be a, to be a part of the part of the beer, uh, then I might be looking at something around a twenty to thirty minute addition. So that again, that's that's again something that before it even hits your lips, you put mm-hmm. the you put your nose in the cup. And it's like, oh, it's like, a, you know, it's hitting you like right in the face. And that, that's a part of it as well. So it's just really about on a per case basis, like how I want that beer to be perceived, like as the person's drinking it. I mean, if it's something up front that I want them to have, something that's more on the back end that you want them to taste, that's where then I start to put together a hop schedule of, all right, well, this is what I'm, this is the flavor profile that I'm, I'm really trying to look for. Of course, trying to keep that in balance with uh, the, the grains itself, but from a hops perspective, I mean, that's really what I'm trying to go for. Like for this, um, uh, this NEPA that I'm uh, going to be doing over the weekend, uh, I, I really want that to be one of those, like one of those juice bombs. Like yeah. that's what I'm going yeah. for. So that's where I'm, I'm trying to hit it with uh, probably, I would say four ounces or so uh, between the boil and flame out. But then I, I want to hit it with the remaining, like, you know, five, six, seven ounces uh, of dry hop, like afterwards, because I want that to be just like that thing that I mean, doesn't matter like how much like what the grain <laughs> is. I don't want the grains to be a part of it at all. I want these hops to hit you like the second that it uh, hits your lips. So for that one, I would. But if it's uh, if it's that blonde that I was talking about earlier, then sure, you're going to be a little bit more delicate with uh, with your hop additions because you don't want that to really carry uh, the beer itself. So it just comes down to the style and uh, I guess what you're going for from a from a flavor perspective. Awesome. And 
Yeah, I just poured it. Okay. <laughs> this is like um, my second time drinking this. Ooh, beer. that looks good. That, 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 is that oh. the same one, or is that a different? No, one? this is the session that I just did. So the session. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So we got a we got a listener question. We're gonna just quickly pivot to. It's uh about football. So, um, he, it's uh. I want to say Lucian. That, that's how I pronounce it, so that's what we're going with. We're going to go with you can go with that. Uh, they want to know who's our most underrated rookie prospect. So just give one name. Um, he's just one guy that you that you think is flying, flying underneath the radar in terms of a prospect. Uh, me first? Do you guys want to go first? You can go first, man. You're the guest. Okay. Um, I'm kind of digging... Uh, t- I might mispronounce his first name Tamarian. I I don't mind like, like I know he's probably going to wind up being, I hope he doesn't go undrafted, but I, the very least I think he's going to wind up being a day three pick. But if, but I'm looking at it from a dynasty perspective, if there's one guy that I think if I'm going to try and swing for swing for the upside on for like a third, you know, for like a third round pick, I think he has some of the tools that uh, would at least get you there, depending on where he winds up. Yeah, like draft capital behind him and all that, but I do think he's one of those intriguing prospects that's like towards the back end of this draft. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Terry. I, I like I was, I still think there's a chance he goes day two just because of his measurables. I hope and so. The, yeah, his athletic that, upside is it's insane. That's too. the thing that stuck out to me. It's just yeah. like man, like I know he's probably going to wind up being towards the back end of this class because it's like it's more front loaded. But if he's one of those guys that winds up like a team winds up seeing him. Like he winds up getting that day two draft capital, then all right, now we're really talking. So he's one of those guys I'm kind of gunning for in like the third round at this point. But yeah, and he's going to be so like he's at the point where we're just taking upside shots in round three. Mm-hmm. So yep. Uh, what about you, Hopper? I know there, there's one in the chat that you mentioned, but why don't you go ahead and talk? Yeah, about and one I talked about earlier players. on the show too. So I'm going to pivot. I mentioned St. Brown earlier, um, who I don't know how under the radar he is but he's not overhyped which is essentially under the radar these days yeah um the other one that i think is flying a little low right now is kylan hill um Mm, yeah and big fan of of kylan hill especially landing spots gonna matter for him but it's more so what can he do in the open field? So four six two on the forty was a little disappointing, but his games, but his game speed and his burst seem to be a bit better than that. Um, he on film is explosive, good acceleration, good speed, good agility. Um, was decent in pass protection, which should help him get on the field. Um, very pass catching adept, um, and he checks in at five eleven two fifteen. So we've talked about bigger satellite backs kind of in the past Mm -hmm. and if kylan hill lands in a role like that like say arizona who needs some running back depth for example um you know that's a role that i really really like for him and this is a draft class where all of your running backs outside of etn williams and Najee harris and if you're dan kenneth gainwell are going to be flying under the under the radar because it's perceived as a thin class so I mean, you're going to draft running backs, so you've got to figure out who do I need to try to take swing on. And a guy that I like, um, production profile as well, is is Kylan Hill. Um, he also does decent as a downhill runner, and I think think has a pretty good vision from what I saw on film. So 
Um, again, athletic metrics were a little disappointed, disappointing, but overall, I, I like what I saw from him. And mine is, you know, I got to mention in the chat, but I mentioned Amari Rogers. Um, you know, from an athletic profile, or from athletic, from an from an analytical profile, you, you you hope for more. You can kind of explain in a way. Obviously, had you know to compete with uh, T against with uh, Justin Ross. You know, guys, you know, highly caliber, highly touted guys coming out. Ross pre-injury was with Lawrence as the next, you know, uh, freshman wide receiver phenom. But for Rodgers, is really more so just what his size and what he put on his uh, total overall profile. He's one of the bigger wide receivers in this draft class. Uh, I think he's a uh, five nine two oh. Sitting here, uh, five nine two eleven. So he's built. He's thick. It's been toxic to him, maybe taking more snaps out of the backfield, and at least given his size, he can profile to that way. But when you watch the Clemson tape, when you watch his film this year, you can see that he's used both inside and outside. And just uh, given his athletic build, there's there's a lot of potential upside to that. On top of the fact that he had 70, no, sorry, 68 putt returns. You don't put the ball into that guy's hands on, on, on that high caliber of a team for him not to be good in, you know, for him not to be good in the open field. So while his production profile isn't great, there's a lot of upside intrigue. And just like with the prospects that we, you know, that we just both talked about, you know, these two guys are, you know, these three players you can get in the third round of the rookie drafts, yep. especially Superflex, and not have to spend the higher rookie draft capital, you know, to get them. So in when you're in those third rounds, those late second to third rounds and beyond, you're shooting for upside, not just for floor. So guys like that, Wall State, I agree with, you know, with both your guys' picks. So we're going to pivot off the football. We're going to go back to talking beer. I got to ask you guys. What are what are your favorite beers to make? I know there's been a lot of IPA talk, but when it comes down to it, is it still IPAs? You guys, is there maybe something else that you guys just are my favorite to make? So that's interesting, just in the sense that again, Day is kind. Of, when you say make, I think of the act of actually making, and Day is at least for me. Brew day is more about it's more fun in groups. It's more about hanging out with people. It's more about drinking with people and sharing with people because 95% of the work comes in crafting the recipe. That being said, um, I don't have a specific answer. I would just say that anything with a degree of difficulty outside of the grain bill, because the grain bill, when you mash in, you mash in. There's not really a whole lot of, complexities that go into mashing in it's your grain bed is there and your water goes on top of it you mash in ipas are probably the most fun to brew because of your hop additions because you're more active some of those um because of like um some of the stuff that you have to do during the mash process some of those more traditional like german style beers are a little bit more fun to do because you're more involved during the actual brew day because there's more going on. Um, so that's kind of my my non-answer answer as far as what's the most fun to brew because the brewing process in itself 
is not where most of the activity happens. Okay, so let's go with this. You've made what? Four or five different homebrews, Hopper? Me? me? Uh, we're closer to 13 or 14 now. Okay, what's been your favorite one out of the like if like if you're there's what's one that you've you've had the most enjoyment making in terms of nerding out and from recipe building to the actual involvement of making the beer which one it is, was the second it was the second beer i ever did okay. and you got fucking shit canned off a half a bottle of it but <laughs> the flavor was actually really good i think it ended up probably at like 11 percent, 12 somewhere in there Ooh. because all the sugars that were in it i Not tried good. to do um a caramel apple ale type of beer that it, one was good you had that one yeah i forgot about that yeah, so it was strong though so um, that one was everything from I'm putting I'm slicing apples and putting them in the boil to I'm uh, actually taking a portion of the wort and caramelizing it before I um, put it back into the boil to get some natural caramel flavor out of it, which just created more sugar, which made it really high <laughs> in ABV content. Yeah. Um, yeah, you did get a caramel flavor off of it, though. I don't think it was completely for not because you got some of that burnt no, it, sugar type flavors there. off of it. But it, it I'm like caramelizing wort, and then when it comes time to you know in secondary, we've got some cinnamon sticks going in for like a baked apple type thing, and then bottling it. There's actually cider that went into it um, to add even more apple flavor, and I didn't really know what I was doing. But all of the different steps that went into that was actually pretty fun because you just felt a little bit like a mad scientist, like caramelizing wort and tossing fruit in at the boil and everything like that. It was like just so super freaking involved that yeah, it was constant activity and it was fun. <laughs> what about for you, Chris? Uh, I would say like my favorite, uh, I don't know, again, if it's not a style per se, um, but the favorite, my favorite beer to make is actually my, uh, my pumpkin beer that I make around the, oh, uh, yes. October timeframe, <laughs> because kind of like what Chris was outlining whenever, when I make it, like I actually use like legit pumpkin, throw it in the oven with some brown sugar on top of it, mm. you know, scoop that in. And that goes into the, that goes into the boil. Uh, so I, I love doing it. Uh, I think I've done it for the past like four years straight. Um, but it's, it is like, it's one of those where you're, you're moving like start to finish. I mean, the recipe itself, like I've been tweaking for, but yeah, the, the last like five, six years. Um, but it's definitely one of those that like, I look forward to doing it like each year because it's just, it's so fun to make because you're just like, all right, I'm taking like actual pumpkin. Like I'm putting it in here and like, you know, adding all these things and like, you know, doing these extra things that you typically wouldn't do like with a traditional style beer. And so that's where. I find that the challenge in creating something like that to be a bit, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a good thing to do, especially around that time of year. And like to have something like that on hand, I think is, is it's much more fun than you know, any of the other stuff that I would typically brew throughout the year. You're going to bring some of that to the, to the expo. I'll have some beer on hand for sure. I don't know if I'll have I know it's that. a bit early for, you know, I'm so yeah. used to it's someone who oh. works in the beer department. I'm so used to seeing I'll have some things I ha- and pumpkins in August. So, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'll have some things. <laughs> I'll have some things on hand for that. Since you're going to be yeah, there. I'll, I'll bring have, some shit with me. I think the the last one when I went uh not last year obviously, but the year prior, um when I was there, I had three growlers. 
yeah four growlers in a backpack and i just like you know a few folks i was like here got some beer for you take it we're gonna have a damn <laughs> beer fueled mega hangout episode with everybody that's there i'm gonna have to get a suite again dan we might oh, yeah. we might reach out to you chris we might have uh we might we might talk about about doing some some fun nerd out stuff when we're all out there oh heck yeah man and, and i want to go back sure. over to uh i want to go back get over to i'm um, a uh, fathead yeah that's and, uh, good stuff and yeah they, they know that they've got some pretty good brews yeah i enjoyed their pumpkin they, i remember them having an imperial pumpkin it was like 10 percent, and i love if i'm drinking pumpkin beers i want them super boozy so oh yeah by the way like, i think men men eight percent for pumpkin yeah, beers that's that's about right where it needs to be i don't yeah. know if it was because i had one hell of a sinus infection the last time i drank this beer or if it's beca- the difference week one to week two but damn is it better than the first time i had it <laughs> <laughs> all right so we talked about our favorite beers we talked about crafting recipes um we got a little two-parter here. We're we're almost wrapped up here. I don't want to take up too much more of your time here, Chris. But uh, what is the most, I guess in your mind, what is the most crucial part when it comes to making a good homebrew? And then during your guys' times as, of making these beers, what has been kind of the more difficult aspects to grasp? I don't know about you, Chris, but I would say the thing that uh, that took me the longest time to grasp um, were the those uh, the temperature targets that you mm-hmm. need to hit, like for your mash. It's not just the fact that, like you, uh, I mean, each each recipe they'll tell you for the most part they'll tell you like what you need, to, what your mash or your mashing temperature is supposed to be at, like and all that good stuff. But for me, like when I was first starting out, it was trying to understand the why. Like, mm-hmm. why does it need to be at like 152? Like, right. What, like, what, what is the, what's the, what's the purpose? Like, and then, of course, that's where you hop down that rabbit hole of like, yeah. what's happening to it, your it, brain? Yeah. And the simple answer is science for yeah. those that are, that <laughs> are interesting. For folks that, it, for folks it, that don't care, it has to do, it, it's starch conversions and mm-hmm. how easy that is to break down. And, uh, you know, it makes a big difference in how, th- you know, full versus thin your beer is and, yep. uh, fl- and your conversion and your efficiency and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I mean, trying to extract those sugars so that you're actually hitting your gravity targets. I mean, that's, that's where all that stuff happens. But for me starting off, it's like, okay, so if it's at, okay, so I have to have it at 152. All right. But what if it's at 153? <laughs> all right. So now, so what am I supposed to do now? So does it have to be do I now need to like cool it down to one? I mean, th- so those are the things where it was difficult for me to try and suss out like, you know, it, like what what really needs to happen in order for well, me to hit my targets and to get to the the flavor profile or even to like the gravity targets that I'm looking for. And you're, I mean, it, it doesn't take too long after that. And you're on electric, so you got it a little easy because you got oh, you yeah, have temperature is, yeah. control. But when you're doing it like I am and you still got the converted like igloo cooler. You ain't keeping it at a damn temperature. You're shooting like two degrees over target and then, you know, two to five degrees over target. And then you're hoping your average temperature is somewhere in the area where you wanted it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. I'm definitely with you. And so that's, and that's where if you, if you want to, if you want to crawl down that rabbit hole and get into the science um, and it's actually the same thing on the, on the temperature side of things with, with yeast. Yeah. And of course the, the, the thing, I mean, the, I mean, the rule is like, you know, if it's under, you know, seventy-five degrees or less, okay, you're you're probably fine. 
and you're not, you know, you're not going to wind up completely missing your target. Mm-hmm. But then if you want to dive into what type of flavor profiles you're going to get from your yeast, then now, I mean, you're really diving into that, that next level of nuance when it comes to, mm-hmm. when it comes to homebrewing yeah. where I would just be just as fine taking my, taking my bucket, pitching my little pack of SO4, SO5, right. throwing it into my closet and I'll come back in a week. Right. And SO4 and SO5 are nice because they ferment well at room temperature. Uh-huh. Yeast companies yeah. are at least nice in the fact that most of them will, one, do a good job of spelling out what esters you're going to get, two, telling you what the optimal fermentation temperature range is for their yeast, and three, typically giving you a percentage of flocculation and attenuation. So they give you a little more info than at least, but if you're asking yourself what flocculation or attenuation are, that's half the fun <laughs> with yeast exactly. and trying to figure out oh, that shit um actually i got uh, for anybody that really wants to go down that rabbit hole go and get you this book right here i mean that is as deep down the rabbit hole as like you want to go or you meet yourself uh, a guy with a doctorate in yeast yeah that also helps too uh which lucky enough to have met that, that guy but uh <laughs> Wilderness Trail, Dr. Pat Highest. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. you can, there are whole, I mean, I've, I've sat in on conversations that have lasted 45 to like 45 minutes to an hour between, I mean, these are like high level, like before yeah. you go pro, like home brewers, just right. talking about yeast. Yep. Because it is a, a major component to yeast. Like you don't realize it, but I'll go back to Hefeweizen, for example. Other than the, um, the chemicals that are put off at your different temperature targets because science mm-hmm. yeast major part for some of those banana notes and everything yeast right major part for some of those fruity esters if you've ever had a, a saison that little tinge that you get off of them that's entirely yeah. yeast that's an, is it yes. all yeast that is entirely oh, yeah. yeast that little tinge you get i want a saison dupont so um I'll take it a little different. I agree on, first off, I don't disagree with uh, what you said on yeast or on temperatures because temperatures are a hard thing to to wrap your head around about. And you're going to Google it like 19 times still on remembering yeah. of, okay, is it if I go, you know, is it lower or higher that I go for a fuller bodied beer or, um, you know, that type of stuff. Um the most difficult thing, which may or may not be the most difficult thing because I haven't attacked it yet, water chemistry intimidates the shit out of me. Um, and varying opinions on how much it matters and, dep- and depending on where you are, it varies what you actually need to do water chemistry-wise. If you live in St. Louis City proper where Anheuser-Busch paid for the water system, which we learned three episodes ago on this show. <laughs> Stompy. Stompy. Um mm-hmm. You don't have anything to do because Anheuser-Busch paid for it. It's pretty well neutral. If you live in a place like I do, um, just outside of that, where the water is a little bit hard, then it's going to be better for certain types of darker beers. And for lighter beers, you may have to treat it. And that, like, learning how to filter and treat and do that with water is something that's intimidated the hell out of me. So... If I'm going to pivot to something that I actually have done that was, uh, to me, mildly intimidating, it's um, 
uh, proper carbonation and volume of CO2 is mm. especially for different beer styles. So, you know, Dan's heard me mention, you heard guys heard me mention bottle bombs earlier on the show. So first off, to understand why it's difficult, you have to understand the different ways that you can carbonate. You can force carbonate if you're kegging or I'm not kegging yet because I moved out of an apartment in October and I didn't have any real estate to do kegging. You bottle condition. And the trick of bottle conditioning is, we're going to get sciency here for a minute, is you add priming sugar at the bottling because there's still yeast that's in your beer and is still active in your beer that will then take that sugar while it's in the bottle and convert that into alcohol. But as a byproduct, you get CO2 and then because your bottles are oxygen locked with the cap and barrier locked, that CO2 reinfuses into the beer and therefore carbonates it. Problem is different beers, different types of carbonation, different levels of sugar that need to be added. Your temperature that your bottle conditioning at has a major impact on, um, you know, how much carbonation you're going to get. You get too carbonated, you have bottles exploding, um, and you know, foam, foam ups and all sorts of shit. You undercarbonate, then it's going to taste flat. But then the amount of carbonation that's proper for your beer varies on style to style. Again, BJCB be damned. But if you overcarbonate a stout, for example, you're going to know. Oh, yeah. Versus if you yeah. undercarbonate uh, an ale, you're going to know. So, um, you know, it, it's kind of just. And the other part of it is depending on what you're using for priming sugar, ferments differently and varies on the amount that you need to use. If you're using table sugar, it's not going to be the same if you're using brown sugar, if you're using corn syrup, whatever. So all of that kind of, a lot of that kind of goes away when you get into to kegging because then you just set your regulator for this is the PSI and the level of infusion I want and you're good. But if you're bottle conditioning when you're first starting out, there's a not exact science and trick to actually getting that shit right, which is the number one reason that I've had beers screwed up. I haven't had a problem with infections. I haven't had a problem really with recipe building. I have had problems with carbonation, uh, overcarbed, undercarbed, bottle bombs, uh, you know, shit like that. So just that's my answer on it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the water chemistry thing, that's actually the, that's actually the, probably the best answer because, uh, I haven't even stepped into that realm. I, uh, in my area, we do have hard water. So I just wound up saying, screw it. Um, I got an RO system yep. and that's, that's what I do. I mean, have I gone into, I think in a cup, like for, I think it was for a competition or something like that a couple of years ago, uh, that I was doing, I wound up getting like a, uh, like, uh, what did I wind up adding? Like some gypsum and maybe like a couple other additives in order to get the, uh, water, like water profile I was looking for. Mm. But that's because I, but the only reason I did that is because I had the exact amount that I needed to add in order to, it's more or less just following a recipe. And, but other than that, could I create a water chemistry profile in order to match a style? No, I've looked into like, just like we were talking earlier about uh, the like Belgian style. No, like <laughs> they, they have the, I mean, cause for most of them, the traditionally they were using the wells that were at, uh, that were at the abbeys yeah. that like most of the monks were like, were brewing at. So like trying to recreate that is like nearly impossible. Yeah. But for, 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 for my purposes, I figured if I at least have 
as close to neutral water as possible. And I'm going to wind up taking a hit on efficiency from that anyway, as long as I'm not completely going off the rails and like, you know, adding either like, uh, like, like, uh, like additives or something like that, or my adjuncts are completely off or, you know, whatever, then I can at least start off with, uh, just some neutral water and, and take it from there. Neutral water, spring water, something like that and go from there. But yeah, that is one of the, at least for me, it's like uncharted territory and something that I've been debating for about a year or so ago on if I really want to start diving into that. Yeah. That's where you get into the real chemistry about it. Yeah. And that's something I did at the beginning of this year. Cause I'm sitting there like, all right, go. I, I'm a little insight into how my brain works. The beginning of every year I set goals and I set them for different areas. Like there's goals for this podcast that are definitely aren't related to listener count or anything. There's goals to, um, um, you know what I'm doing with, bourbon society there's goals to what i do with homebrew and the three things i looked at were do i want to focus more on temperature control in all aspects of the brew do i want to get to kegging or do i want to look at water chemistry we want mm-hmm. temperature for this year but water chemistry is on the horizon eventually <laughs> but like you said ro system which is basically a whole house brita filter for those that don't know um yep. You know, it is a little bit of an investment, but then, like you said, gypsum and all the different additives that you add to change the different pH levels and everything in your water. And it's not the same for every beer, which is even harder. It's not just like, okay, I know my water, so I got to add X, Y, and Z for every style of beer to get it neutral. No, when you really start getting into water chemistry, different chemistries of water are better for different types of beers. So you're treating your water differently every damn time you get it to a neutral starting point and then you treat it and Mm -hmm. uh, it's involved and you've got to be a damn chemist to, I think really understand everything you're doing instead of just, well, yeah, it says that this says that this calculators that can at least get you on the right path nowadays, but it's like, do you want to put in it's again like how far down the rabbit hole right. do you want to Do go? you just wanna take what the calculator tells you and not understand why it's telling you that, or do you under yeah. want to understand why it's telling you that? And if you want to understand why it's telling you that, hopefully you got a couple hours to, to study. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you're not a like if you're not a fan of chemistry, then just you know buy you, you know, six, seven gallons of spring water at your local supermarket and then right. it's gonna be that. like eight bucks. You use that and it's already purified. Yeah. Yeah, or you just say screw it and go with whatever comes out of the faucet, and as long as hey, not, I did that for yeah, I did that yeah, for a few years. As long as there's not super off flavors, you're okay. Uh huh. Yeah. Is there a massive difference to using? Like I know, I mean, without without having to jump too much into the chemistry of it, but is there? I haven't really thought about it, but there, like, is there a true noticeable difference when you use? Let's say just you know tap water as opposed to trying to get to more of the more purified, I guess neutral balance. So water. let me flip that around on you, Dan. You've drinking various bottled waters and stuff in your life, right? Yeah. Is there a noticeable difference between Aquafina and Smart Water, or between water that came out of a Brita filter versus water that came straight out of the tap, or between um, like distilled water from the store and Dasani? I'm not saying that to be a smart ass. No, no, no. I, no of course, be... uh, taste wise, yes. Yeah. I, 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 like, which is, uh, yes. I guess it's, 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 me, it's, it's me asking a question. It's, it's, yeah. It's, I, it's, I, mm-hmm. I can 
taste difference for my tap to yes bottled and you can in beer too um yeah you know if like i said i have hotter harder water so if you're really looking for like the back end of this beer is a good example um you can tell on the back end of this with it being a lighter beer relying mostly on hops for flavor that it was made with a little bit harder water it's not a super off flavor you don't know it's there unless you're looking for it okay but you know it it is almost a little bit of an you know oxide or oxidized taste and the beer's not oxidized you can tell because it's not gray yeah but (laughs) there's a little bit of a of an oxidation note that comes from the water so um, if there's high iron content in your water you're going to taste that and it shows up differently in different beers stouts mask it better and harder water actually is a little bit better for them because it makes them fuller. But okay, um, ales, pilsners, pilsners especially. Like you don't got clean water for a pilsner, you're gonna find forget it. about it. Yeah, yeah. you're gonna really? find it. Okay, I did. Like, is that just more towards just like lagers in general? I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously we see how pilsners look, and are you know, it's all meant to. You basically just look through them. It's it more clean, towards so. yeah, and it's more towards how much the water is going to have a place to shine in the beer, right? Sure. It's the best way I can put it. So if you're doing okay. a stout or a porter, you've got a bunch of heavily roasted malts in there and a bunch of caramelized malts and you know, all sorts of grains that are going to give it different roasty coffee, sweet types of flavors to where the water isn't going to have as much of a profile to shine. If you're doing sure. a, a Pilsner where your malts are mostly clean, it's going to have a place to shine. If you're doing an ale where um, you're not using a ton of heavily roasted malts, like let's say you're doing a pale ale, um, IPAs where hop and bitterness goes so far, but you're still relying on a lot of water as well. Because, yeah, so I guess basically the way best way I can put it and Chris, keep me honest or tell me if I'm completely off base or if your opinion differs. But to me, it more so depends on the grains you're using. Also, adjuncts. Adjuncts notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. If you're using a grains that have a ton of malt bill or a ton of flavor or a ton of roastiness to them, the water doesn't have as much room to shine. And you're going to have a lot more more leeway with that. If you're using a bunch of clean grains that that aren't roasted or that aren't don't you know, have a ton of natural malt backbone to them. If they're more, uh, like lightly sweet, like a Pilsner or two row, um, water chemistry is going to make a much bigger difference. So it depends on the beer. Okay. It's actually a fun, uh, the, one of the, um, brew clubs that I'll go and, uh, go to some of their meetings. They'll actually have like essentially the Pepsi challenge of, okay. uh, same recipe, same yeast, but, They'll use tap versus the water profile that's supposed to be for that style versus just straight like RO, like neutral. Yeah. Yeah. And you can taste the difference. That's I what mean, I would love to try that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really fun. I mean, sure. diving into stuff like that, like where yeah. you can, I mean, it's almost easily noticeable that so there's, sure. there's something different. And like, like Chris was saying, unless you're looking for it, you don't know. Then you, you you wouldn't know. Exactly. And like But if me, you have them yeah. side by side, yeah. I mean they almost they might uh, they might slightly look different. There might be maybe a slight change in SRM. I mean just slight differences. But yeah. again, unless you were holding them up side by side, I mean you you probably wouldn't be able to tell. 
SRM is uh, color, by the way, Dan. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, mm-hmm. I caught that. Yeah, I caught okay. that. Just making sure. No, 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 I got it. <laughs> or listeners. I guess I can point it to listeners, too. Yeah. yeah. SRM's I, color I, scale. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like a step above, like, novice. It's, just, I, I, it's like, just shit that you don't know just from drinking it, though, or from, from buying yeah. it. Like, you don't, There's you so, see IBUs yeah. on the side of a can. You don't see SRM on the side of a can. Yeah, yeah. Even though I don't know if a lot of people know what IBU stands for. Fuck, even IBUs people get confused. I, actually, I got a question here for you. I know what IBU stands for, but how the hell do you actually measure it? Yeah, I have right? no idea. That's actually a good question. <laughs> yeah, because, okay, cool. We're in the same boat. I was talking about this yeah. the other day. I uh, When I was making the session, right, because you have a target IBU, mm-hmm. bittering units. So it's like, okay, I'm going to hit that target IBU, and then I'm thinking it's like, okay, you track gravity. Because I know how to you measure it with the hydrometer. So you, right. those are numbers I track. And then from gravity, you can typically deduce ABV. And there's a way mm-hmm. to test for that. And yep. SRM, you have a color scale. So you can test right. for that. But I'm like, how the shit do you know if you hit your IBU target? Yeah, because I was always thinking that if it would be... Uh, I was almost thinking something as simple as if you use so many ounces... At, and your alpha acids are, you know, are, are at this percentage, then right. you can calculate like what the utilization, and you also know what your hop utilization rate is going to be. Then you can calculate what your IBUs are going to be. That's what I was thinking it was going to be, but yeah. I don't think that's the case. So I, I don't know. That's something. Well, it's I'll like everything else, right? Because how do you know what you you can reasonably, I guess, assume what your utilization is? But it's just like yeah. gravity, right? If I put yeah. a bunch of grains into a grain calculator, and I know. Um, you know, which maltster they're coming from. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I generally, and I know what my weight's going to be, then I should generally, and I know what my my mash temp is, and I should generally know what type of sugar content I'm going to extract. But it never works that way. It's like bourbon math or anything else. It never works out the way the math works out. So it's like, (laughs) you're not, you don't know what your hop efficiency is. So how the hell does anybody know if you ever hit your IBU IBU target? Mm -hmm. Yeah, until you drink it. Right, and even then you're going to know if you're way off. I'm not going to know if I'm the difference between 18 and 25 IBUs. I'll know the difference between 18 and 90. (laughs) And even then, like, it's really funny. So I've talked to customers that'll ask me about, like, well, I want a little bittering beer or whatever, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll show them a bunch of, you know, if we're going, like, you know, super dry hop bomb beer super hazy beers that aren't you know that are brewed and made to not you know if f- future bitterness to their beers and you'll look at the ibus and i'll say like 35 on it and i've had the beer and to me personally there's there's none on there right there's absolutely none but to them they're like well it says i you know you know ibu and you know then i'll ask like you don't even know what the fuck it stands for like oh yeah i got it you know we're actually fair. there's like, an answer sure? the, there's an answer in the chat Oh, how do it's they do measured it? by spectral yeah. fulmometer. Spectrometer. Yeah, I will too. I've heard well, Rubio coming in with uh, coming in with the the knowledge here. Yeah, and I think that uh, pause for uh, pause for Google. The intensity of light is that almost the same? Uh, intensity of light uh, by particle or something. Isn't that the same way that the, that you can measure? Yeah. Uh, gravity yes yep it, it's the more accurate way versus a hydrometer yeah oh okay yeah, well, it, i have one of those for measuring for measuring gravity i didn't know that you could do it the same way for for hops and interesting yeah and beersmith by the way is 
an awesome utility. Yeah, it, it oh, it's spits wonderful. out yeah. freaking everything for you. But mm-hmm. yeah, thank you for that because yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I would not have thought. I knew you could use it for gravity and then drive ABV and everything. I didn't know you that that's what you use it for ABU. Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah. Thank you, Eric. So now I'm gonna have to try that. <laughs> and he obviously knows. So how the hell did we not get him on the show? Oh. Right. Sorry, Mister. He'd be a way better guest, Mister Rubio. I need. No, um, I mean, come on. Nah, but <laughs> you're doing great. Right, direct, so, our director of guest appearances, and you uh, know, our I director of guest you. appearances, you know, failed me on having a chance to go on another podcast. I, I kept trying day. to ask people to come on. I mean, it's I not miss Mister Rubio here. Totally your fault. I didn't read my own DMs, but no, you're good. Um, <laughs> he would have schooled all of us. Yeah, he'd have. He would have just. Anyways, <laughs> all right. For so sure. last, you know, kind of last part here is we're not going to run on too long here. It's, we're at two hours. We two hours. We crossed too long thirty minutes ago. <laughs> Fuck it. So we, we got we, we got kind of one true question left, and then you know, then any other comments we want to throw in afterwards. But of all the beers you've made so far, both old and new, what has been the most challenging beer? It's been kind of hinted at, you know, in base conversations that we've had so far tonight, but. What has been the most challenging beer you've ever made? And did you reach your goals or I guess did it kind of come up short? So I'm going to get philosophical here, Chris. To me, you don't really know if a beer is challenging until you screw it up. (laughs) Yeah. And then the real challenge is like dialing it in. I have a feeling that the most challenging beer I'm going to make is the one that's in the fermenter, which is the Bavarian Weissail. Because, as we talked about earlier, doing traditional-style beers, really, really difficult. Even though they don't feel difficult when you're building the mash bill or when you're building the recipe or anything like that, I just I have a feeling that that's going to be the biggest bear that I, I tackle from a challenge perspective because... There ain't no way that beer's coming out great the first try. It might be drinkable. It might be good. There ain't no way that beer's coming out great on the first try. And trying to dial in something like that, I think, is going to be a bit of a challenge. As far as, like, the most challenging thing that I've actually done so far. I think I'm that one for a second. Um... It's not. It might actually be a tie between that Poblano beer I had earlier and that caramel apple beer I mentioned the other day, just as far as like crafting the recipe and everything else that went into it. Poblano beer, yeah, Poblano beer is probably the hardest one because you got to be real careful about infection when you're playing with roasted peppers in in fermentation. So. Because you know, peppers don't naturally keep well anyway. So you got to be real freaking careful about that beer not getting infected. So that's probably the most difficult one so far. But if I had a hunch, that one that's in the closet right now is probably going to be the biggest bear to dial in. I would say for me, uh, because I've done competitions, uh, the hardest beer, and I'm, this is probably why I don't submit to this category anymore. Uh, so if I'm trying to like hit the traditional like BJCP guidelines trying to hit a <clears throat> trying to meet the guidelines for a traditional IPA is an absolute pain in the ass. 
There's just for as broad as you can get uh, within the category, because I mean, just if you pull up the notes, I mean, it's like you can say that uh, it's supposed to be, you know, medium light to medium bodied mouthfeel. I mean, even like your gravity targets are fairly wide ranged. Uh, I mean, the, but once you try and like hit some of those targets and then uh, getting feedback from, from judges and they're looking for like specific notes, they're looking for specific things like about that, about that style that make it difficult to try and like, you know, you have, to, if you don't, if you're not hitting that style and you go off the deep end and try and create something new, it's very difficult to wind up scoring as, as at least in a like decently within that particular category. So it's always been a, a problem area for me because I like making my own thing, but if you try and sub, like make your own thing and then also, uh, you know, submit to that category. Yeah. Don't, don't bother. Um, but uh, at least from a creation standpoint, uh, or at least like just going off on and doing my own thing, I have done a couple of uh, like uh, pepper beers. Like I've done like some uh, like mango habanero. Yeah. Like I've done that, done that in the past. Um, but it's just trying to get that right balance of spice without without uh, infecting the beer. Mm-hmm. But then also once you're introducing like the the oils like from the pepper itself and making sure that's not going to add yeah. not necessarily a astringency but um uh dang on it i forget the word that i'm looking for but either way just trying to balance what the natural flavor of the beer would wind up being versus you know trying to pile on too much in terms it, of bad the other problem with oils too and you have it with coffee as well or chocolate or anything else that's naturally oily is uh trying to get the right amount of head on your beer because you got to make sure that if you're putting that in adjunct wise oil will kill yeah. head so then you've got to go back and add um, like flaked barley or yeah, um, carapils or something else to help balance that out. So that's another another trick when you're doing anything that's oily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's one of those things where you, you brew one and it's like, oh, I'm off my targets. You know what happened? Okay, I need to do this. So I don't think I've seen or like talked to anybody that's been able to hit one of those like right out the gate. It's one of those like you definitely need to like to have three four iterations of it before you really starting to dial that one in well i don't want to be like a humble brag or anything like that but i definitely hit that one first try look at you man <laughs> i mean it took six months for the pepper to fall off enough for me to really okay, like yeah. it but it was still the first try so look at that you man. got there but it was you poblano which is a little easier to deal with too because you're not dealing with a bunch of spice or anything like that it's it's a smoky pepper so right yeah because i've done stuff with jalapenos yeah and like i've done stuff with habaneros and it's just it's just never quite i've never been able to hit it on the first try yeah it's been like two three two three iterations before it's a balancing I'm, I'm really act gonna, yeah and yeah it's a balancing act for sure like i said i thought it was going to be a drain pour and then <laughs> i just didn't because well, it's one of the things I was told early on was if you think it's bad, just let it sit and revisit it in a month or two. Mm-hmm. So you're much more patient than I am. Especially because, bottle yeah, I would, conditioning. I, I would let it sit and just be like, I don't like it. <laughs> Let's move on to the next one. I have one up there right now that just turned a corner that I didn't like at first and almost got drain poured. I actually drain poured part of it anyway because I needed the bottles, but I actually kept hold of some of it because it turned a corner. I couldn't get cocoa nibs for the longest time. It was really weird. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. so I did a white stout, but I ended up, because I couldn't get cocoa nibs, I went to Trader Joe's and got, like, dark chocolate, you know, 
almost no milk, no sugar. Um, okay. Dark chocolate covered cocoa beans and crushed them with a meat tenderizer and used that in place <laughs> of it. And then we did uh, coffee beans in it that were aged in a bourbon barrel that my bourbon society picked. Very um, nice. And it was way heavy on coffee at first, but coffee like fruit wears off over time. So, mm-hmm. so I guess just to pivot off of this little, uh, this little conversation, like when you make a beer, obviously you know with Chris, you've you've done multiple beers for this hopper. You're still you know kind of you know I, I I guess doubling back, but like through the first recipes that you guys have made. What are some of the major, like, I guess, what are some of the major differences or, or I guess, the uh, changes you wanted to make? Like, what are the biggest things you've learned from from maybe transitioning from the, the first recipe or the first rendition of that recipe to maybe the the uh, the second or third time you've made it? And I guess with Chris, or, or, or I guess with Hopper, but what have you, what are some of the things that you've picked up from the first time you've made a beer to maybe what you want to change into the the second and third time you want to make it so the couple things that i have rebrewed um it i mean it really again it varies um sure you know there was one that came out a little bit darker where i adjusted the 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 crystal malt i was using basically from a, a 60 back to a 40 which gives you a little less caramel flavor but also gives you lighter color um this beer I'm drinking right now, I can already tell you that um, I want to use more late edition hops to bring out more aroma on it. Um, you know, if I were to go, you know, I'm going to go back and rebrew the cream ale and I can tell you that I want to use a bittering hop that okay. has a little bit is a little bit cleaner um, as far as not imparting additional flavors, just really imparting bitter. Um you know, it, it's it's one of those things that recipe to recipe is just going to to vary. Like next time I go back and try to rebrew, uh, you know, a, a chocolate marshmallow stout, I'm gonna want to dial. I'm gonna want to not use meadow foam honey. I'm just gonna go use vanilla, for example. It was like an adjunct sure. adjunct try that failed, right? And it's really about being able to troubleshoot and and diagnose. <laughs> um, but as far as kind of a general lessons learned, the more recipes I put together, because I think that's where I can provide value to this discussion. Um, less is more in a lot of instances. I think that, at least for me, when I came into this, it was, I want to try to do this, this, and this. It's really cool, but there's like 90 different things to it. That's how my second beer had me caramelizing wart, right? Mm-hmm. And then it was just the doubling back to realize, you know, hey, I probably didn't need to do that. I probably could have just achieved that with a little bit different grain bill. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's it's things like that that you figure out as you as you go. Like, um, you know, with, with hop additions, it's not so much less as more. It's, you know... How do you adjust the hop schedule? But I, I mean, there's just little nuances I think you pick up with everything you brew about what would I do better, diagnosing what I would do better, and then diagnosing something to learn forward. Patience was the hardest thing for me to learn as far yeah, as. For sure. All right, that beer's going to suck. 
no, this should be drain poured. Well, maybe I should just walk away from it for a couple weeks. Or mm-hmm. maybe um, not, you know, give it a couple extra weeks in the fermenter to let some things settle out. Shit like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the that's the biggest thing. And I know that I definitely was not in that camp when I first started out of just being just being patient. Uh, I, I was like I was saying earlier or at the, at the very start of this conversation, it was I was definitely one of those guys that if I wasn't seeing airlock like within you know the first like you know 10 to 12 hours, I'm freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 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 popping the top, you know, and I'm you know swirling, you know, trying to aerate it as much as possible so that I can maybe see some activity as, as soon as I can. Same thing when I was bottle conditioning, because now I'm, I'm I'm lazy as all hell and I, I keg everything now. Uh, but like when I was bottle conditioning, uh, you know, it says, oh, OK, so if you're if you're you're priming, you know, you put so much in because I was using the uh, there's a, a graphic in I think it's Palmer's book, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. that shows you how many uh, your volume of CO2 that you want versus yeah. how much sugar that you want to add to it. So I was like following that in order to measure out like how much you want and then uh reading through the forms and all that. It's like, okay, so maybe wait another week to 10 days. Everything should be okay. All right. Well, are, are we good? Oh, I don't have the carbonation I'm looking for. Well, what's wrong now is, is everything busted. Now I got to get rid of all of it. So it's just, let it sit, let it, let it mellow, let it, you know, let it, the, let the science take over and, and do its thing. And it's not necessarily something that you always have to wind up, uh, pouring down the drain it could just be something that just needs a little bit more time in order to get it to where that you want it to be mm-hmm. all right last one it's been a lot and it's been a lot of fantastic conversation guys like this has been for those of you like me out there who who haven't dived into this this is a lot of fantastic conversation Hell, even if you don't plan on homebrewing and you just want to know how the shit you're buying off craft beer shelves made there's a lot of good information there's a lot of good combo there's a lot of nerd tots there's a lot of basic like there's all range of spectrums guys this has been hey if you want to know a lot on what not to do i could tell you a lot on that too (laughs) yeah (laughs) yep we'll say that for another episode yeah (laughs) (laughs) i could tell you yeah we could do a whole other show a whole other show on how things have been screwed up all right well We'll do one more. This is real quick here. What has been your most ambitious beer you've tried to make? Like, what is something that you were just like, fuck it, I want to go for it? Will that be with a bunch of adjusts? Will, will that be trying to, I guess, perfect something that you like? But what has been the most ambitious beer you've tried to make? And did you hit it? Or did you, I guess, miss on it? Uh, I think my most ambitious beer uh, was the... Uh, fruit IPA that I put together. So it wound up going into the experimental category at sure. my very first competition. Uh, but it was, uh, I mean, just a basic, uh, I mean, basic IPA uh, recipe, but then I tried to blend. Um, it was like pineapple, pineapple, strawberry, and apples together. And I was like, one, like, why would you even want to try and like blend all that stuff together? Would it even taste great? I mean, it sounds like a great idea, but since it's experimental category, why not? Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's see. Let's see how the, we'll see how it turns out. Um, so got my pineapple, got, I mean, got everything, uh, you know, uh, cut it up. Uh, the result was great because you could really taste the pineapple, uh, but you really couldn't taste much of anything else. 
<laughs> because that's one of those things that definitely overpowers I mean, pretty much any other adjunct that you want to add into it. Yep. Um, but uh, I mean, it worked out great because that's how I got one of these that's oh, hanging wow. like right behind me. There you go. Um, that uh, and to, like to be one hundred percent clear, I don't have these hanging here because I'm that vain of a person. Uh, it's just they just happen to be like there's natural hooks inside my office where I could hang them from something. So that's nice. not the reason that they're there. It's a slight <laughs> humble break, bro. I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah, but th- that's how I got one of these things that's hanging that's hanging over here is b- because it was just I was just thinking about something that I could create. And I was thinking about just random stuff that I can add in because at that point in brewing, I was already doing the, the pumpkin beer that I told you guys about earlier. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I like adding stuff into it. I like trying to infuse a beer with like a natural taste, a natural flavor. So what else could I do? So let's just grab a whole bunch of citrus stuff together, throw it in a beer and see what happens. And so I got that. Yeah, for me, I've talked about it a couple times already. My most ambitious beer is that caramel apple beer because it was just so much different bullshit that I tried to throw at that to make that that work out. And it's like, we're going to get apple pie a la mode off of this. And not really. So did I hit it? I mean, to me. I tried it. I, I mean, yeah. Uh, to I mean, me. To an extent you did. It, to an extent. To me. And that's what I was about to say. I had to make a baseball analogy. I hit it in the same way that you hit a lazy pop fly to center field. There you go. I It'll like play. It. You good. made contact. It'll play. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't exactly what I was going for. Nice flavors. Call it a line out to center field. There's some positives there to take go. away from it. Yeah. But ultimately, the end result isn't exactly what you're looking for. Will I go back and revisit <laughs> it? I haven't decided yet. Maybe if I get bored. But there was so much that went into it and so much that I think I would do differently that I don't know that it would even come close to resembling what the first iteration was. Right on. That's uh, that's kind of it for me, guys. I uh, I'll let me take the reins on this one as, as home brewers. It, it's while I'm not, I don't plan on starting it anytime soon as someone who's worked at the beer industry. For two years from the off-premise side to now someone who's moving on to the other side of, of beer sales, um, this homebrew in general has always been a fun topic for me, just learning more and more about it. So, Chris, I, I thousand percent appreciate you coming back on. Um, hopefully we we won't do the full year on thing again. I have to get you back on and do a little more homebrew conversations. We'll, we'll obviously visit you out in August when we're at the you know, at the expo this year. So I, uh, yes, sir. I mm-hmm. fully appreciate you jumping on Hopper, obviously with your information, just with everything that you've, you've learned. I've obviously learned a bunch from you already. So, yeah, it's good. To, it's good to pivot every now and again. And we could go like, we, we could go we another could go longer, five we, hours oh, on yeah, things we screwed up and equipment yeah, easily, and easily different ways to do different things. So, I mean, there will probably be a version two again and you know, we'll mm-hmm. probably talk more football too. So, or yeah. obviously, anything obviously else. Gotta, so, yeah, pick your mind but, some more. About um, that, so. Hell, I'd like to, uh, when we're up there for the expo, maybe get some of our homebrews on and just do a, a tasting panel or something just to change oh, it up a little to, bit. Man. That'd be pretty fun. Oh, yeah, man. I would, I would love to. Like I said, Perfect. I will be, um, so I'll be there, uh, for the King's Classic draft on Friday because I'm co owning a team with, uh, Mike Woolert, uh, with uh, who works at 444 with me. So I'll be there for uh, for Friday night, uh, Saturday. 
um, you know, checking out, uh, like hanging out with everybody there. Then Sunday, obviously for the expo. Yeah. So I will have uh, growlers in hand. Uh, so we will be, uh, so we will be definitely there to do some, uh, you know, we'll, bottle sharing or whatever. Sure, we'll definitely be there on Saturday, probably midday, and we may drive all the way there on on Friday if there's enough people coming in just to have more time to hang out and stuff. We haven't really, yeah. ha- haven't really hashed out all the specifics yet, but we'll get there. Yeah, you because know, last time we stopped off in Indy so that we could do like 450 North and Sun King and hit a few breweries there, and then drove the oh, rest gotcha. of the way. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hit mm-hmm. Brewdog and then drove the rest of the way uh, the following day. So, oh, I got you. Yeah, um, for sure on saturday but we'll we'll figure it out closer to and let you know and definitely hook up for that because we like to do we like to do shows while we're there and it looks really weird when we walk into the hotel because i'm carrying like boom stands and microphones and cameras and stuff <laughs> bring everything with so, us. Yeah. looks like we're about to film a porno but it's not porno yeah. i swear to god it, it, it's yeah, really know, yeah. just because everybody's in one place we're, and there's such a just di- a bunch of nerds man and we're just yeah there's football. such a different energy <laughs> when you porn. get to record in per- person nerd with porn. people to where we try yeah. to get as much of that done as we can so Cool. That's our show. Hope that you guys enjoyed this being a little different. We'll uh we'll be hitting the draft hard and fast starting next week. Uh, we've got a month's worth of draft <coughs> content coming up. Yep, guys. we've got yeah. quarterbacks and running backs coming up, and then we've got wide receivers and tight ends the following episode, and then we've got I guess it's time to start hyping this. We've got our live stream extravaganza where we'll set up a Zoom call. Dan and I will watch the first round. We'll give analysis on it, get progressively more drunk, and you never know who's going to show up for that. Because we pretty much just put the Zoom link to everybody we have on ever. It's on fucking Twitter, and, pretty much. Yeah, and let them pop in and out. Um, following that, we'll do a week or two of, reaction. of reactions. We'll react, uh, you know, day one, day two, and then day three, and look at the overall structure, some rosters and stuff. And then beyond that, um, once we're out of the draft, probably some more one-off content like like this. So Yep, yep. Just a little look on what's coming up. Chris, one more time, where can people find you? Where can they find their content? Where can they uh, find find you on Twitter and stuff? Yep, come yell at me on Twitter for my bad football takes or you know whatever I don't know about beer at Chris Allen FFWX. Uh, during the offseason, I'll be primarily over at 444. Four, uh, but then once things start uh, kind of ramping up throughout the offseason, I'll be taking on maybe a little bit more over at NBC Sports Edge. Uh, also kicking it with the guys over at footballguys.com, doing a couple shows over there. Uh, so, I mean, you'll, you know, you'll see me around. I'll probably wind up on somebody's <laughs> show at some point. For sure. Uh, you can find us right here, Beerfield Fantasy Football on uh, on YouTube. We haven't Beer, figured Beer, how to change. Beer. No, well, we haven't figured out how to change the name yet on YouTube. One way. And mostly because <laughs> I haven't looked. Uh, Beerfield, wherever, Beerfield, wherever you get podcasts, website and stuff coming soon. Um, so yeah, thank you guys for tuning in and we will catch you next time, which is, uh, nine 30 next week, eight 30 next week. I don't remember Dan. Eight 30, nine o'clock special uh, time, central eight, time, eight 30, yeah, a couple nine more guests central. Are coming on. So yeah, yeah. next week for quarterbacks at her quarterback running backs next week. See ya. Yep. Peace.